The following is presented by the Center for Political Innovation, CPI, Building American Socialism for the 21st Century. To learn more, visit cpiusa.org. Hey there, everybody. How you doing tonight? Welcome, welcome, welcome. Should be a great program for you tonight. Just a few things that we're going to talk about for my opening remarks. I'll be answering super chat questions in the second half of the show. It's going to be good. So uh, hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the notifications bell. Always great when you hit the notifications bell. And I guess we'll just jump into it. Should be a fun, laid back stream tonight. Should be good, some good stuff. So yeah. Of the American century. I say that the century on which we are entering can be and must be the century of the common man. A radical redistribution of economic power. I mean, we know that racism is just, it's just a byproduct of capitalism. Everything will be all right if everything was put back in the hands of the people. We need a government that will make sure Americans are taken care of and organize the economy to serve the people, not the profits of a wealthy few. We now have the techniques and the resources to get rid of poverty. We've got to start getting out there with the people. Get out of the movement and get to the masses. We need a government of action. Yep, should be great, folks. So welcome, welcome, welcome. Um, hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the notifications bell. Um, the way this works is I give my opening remarks. After I give my opening remarks, uh, then from there, um, at that point, uh, we, uh, we do the roll call where I call you all out as I see you, names and locations, names and locations. And then from there, uh, after that, uh, I answer super chat questions for the rest of the night. So that's how it works. So if you have something about which you would wish to have me opine or give you an answer, if you ask me a question, for the most part, I will give you an answer. Send a super chat. Uh, tonight, I'll be writing them down. I'll be typing them uh, as we go along. And that is how we will do it. Ayatollah Khomeini and the Islamic Revolution. All right. Writing it down. Um, all right. Very good. First question already. Khomeini and the Islamic Revolution. Wrote it down. Um, and uh, that's how it works. Uh, so welcome, everybody. So glad to be engaging with all of you here tonight. So um, I guess a couple things. First of all, um, real quick, uh, first things first, I just want to mention this because it's not getting much play in American media, but I feel like this could be a very, very serious situation. So I saw that RT, um, you know, the suppressed TV news network, uh, that uh, I work for, that US, the U.S. government doesn't want you to watch. Uh, about two hours ago, they tweeted out the following. Islamabad calls up troops as ousted Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan leads protest caravan into the capital. That's big. Now, we know Imran Khan was ousted uh, because he uh, was basically more or less siding with Russia uh, against uh, the Ukrainian neo-Nazis and against NATO, and that he was forced out of office. We also know that Pakistan... Is an essential part of the China-Pakistan economic corridor and the Belt and Road. Um, I mean, I mean, okay. Writing it down. Um, 
and is a part of the um, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative uh, and, you know, bringing economic development and that he says he was ousted. The USA continues to claim he wasn't uh, ousted by them, uh, but, you know, he continues to point to the role of U.S.-backed NGOs and, and U.S. leaders not approving of his statements. And that situation could get very, very intense. Now, we know, um, you know, at one point in Pakistan, they had a socialist president, an openly socialist president who, uh, you know, quoted Marx and Lenin, uh, you know, his name was Bhutto, um, and Bhutto, uh, he quoted Marx and Lenin, and he studied, you know, it was very close to China, uh, invoked Mao Zedong thought, uh, built a movement of the workers and peasants. Uh, his movement, uh, their, their slogan was, um, Islam is our religion, uh, socialism is our politics, Islamic socialism is our ideology, and the USA not only backed the military of Pakistan in toppling Bhutto, uh, but then on top of that, the United States uh, enabled the uh, the military dictatorship that came into power to frame up Bhutto, uh, you know, and give him the death penalty. Uh, it was really, really horrendous. And um, Ramsey Clark, who I used to work for, the former U.S. Attorney General, he uh, intervened and tried to, uh, you know, tried to uh, stop the execution of Bhutto. Uh, George Galloway, who I have the honor of working with, he also uh, did that um, as well. Um, hey, Troy. So, so glad to have your support, and thank you very much for the super chat. Uh, he also intervened, and so the USA has intervened in Pakistani politics um, before, um, you know, and this is a, a particularly brutal case. Um, and uh, so I, a lot of eyes at this point. All right, we'll write that down. Um, at this point, a lot of eyes are on Pakistan and the situation that's developing there. So, you know, the people of Pakistan have poured out of the streets to support Imran Khan. The protest caravan is entering Islamabad. Uh, the military has been called up. Uh, this could get ugly really, really quickly. The people of Pakistan are with Imran Khan. Uh, the anti-imperialist camp is with Imran Khan. Uh, he says this is a U.S.-backed coup. Um, you know, he came into office condemning the U.S. drone strike program. Uh, you know, his presidency, he hasn't been a full-on anti-imperialist like many had hoped. He's, he's made a lot of compromises, but he's considered to be a populist and an anti-imperialist. So there you go. Uh, Marcos in the Philippines. Um, uh, talking, taking the W in... Okay. All right. Marcos in the Philippines. Most sad. All right. Um, but yeah, uh, that's one situation that I can guarantee you mainstream media is not paying attention, that we should all be paying attention to. In addition to that, um, we're all reacting to the horrendous shooting that happens. Now we've had two shootings just this week. Uh, there was the shooting that happened in Buffalo, uh, and then now there's the shooting that just happened uh, in Texas. Uh, and people are reacting to that, that, you know, U.S. society has this demented problem with people losing their minds and, and shooting. Um, and in this case, it was a lot like the Sandy Hook thing, where this guy, I guess he killed his grandmother, and then he went to a school and killed a bunch of children. Uh, just absolutely horrendous, absolutely horrendous. Um, you know, and of course, there's a new debate about gun control. But at the same time, you know, I mean, this is a sign that U.S. society is deeply, deeply unhealthy. No question about it. Um, you know, this is a kind of, of dangerous criminality uh, that the world has never seen before. The people crack and become so murderous 
uh, pouring their rage out at a bunch of random school children like this. Uh, this is particularly horrendous. A lot of people are really horrified. They're also really horrified by that racist murderer in Buffalo, right, who just went to the grocery store and just started killing random black people. Releasing a white supremacist manifesto, people are pointing out that he used some of the white supremacist symbols that the Azov Battalion uses. Um, you know, mainstream media somehow thinks that this guy who's using the very symbols that the Azov Battalion, you know, the the, the neo-Nazi group the USA supports in Russia, you know, they think somehow this guy is Russia's fault when he's doing exactly, you know, he's wearing the exact symbols of the people the USA is supporting to fight against Russia. That shows you how ridiculously biased our media is, and that like they don't ever pause for a moment. We're mainly here at this conference to talk they don't ever pause America. for a moment and say, you know, we wait a minute. I mean, they're so controlled. Us, um, but, uh, you know, that's theory. that's what's going on. And, and that's White particularly House horrendous. Congress, so we want to talk about that. The um, there seems to be a moment where it looks like there's now suddenly hope. I told you guys that something had changed with regards to Ukraine. It looked like suddenly there has been some hope for negotiations. Now, it ain't over till it's over, as they say, and nothing has happened yet. But I told you all that about, you know, about about a week and a half ago, it looked like something was happening. Um, so, you know, it, I mean, I seem to be right. Now we have the New York Times uh, saying they don't think it's realistic at this point to drive uh, Russia out of the territories that Ukraine claims. Uh, the New York Times is calling for negotiations. It looks like the Ukrainian side is making some noise. So this all indicates things could move in a good direction. We could be seeing peace soon. Let's just hope that these things pan out. Very scary times that we're living in. Very, very scary times that we're living in. Um, so I just wanted to kind of give you a, a news rundown. Um, about the situation, the food crisis, right? We know about the uh, the baby formula crisis and how serious that is. Um, and the food crisis now is also, you know, I mean, it's we're facing a global food crisis. Um, I mean, it's going to be extreme. Uh, and, you know, I warned you about it. Uh, Joe Biden has admitted it's going to happen. Russia has been warning about it. So we're bracing for the food crisis that's coming up. I mean, these are important times to be political. These are very, very important times to be political. I keep reminding myself, I take a deep breath a lot these days, and I remind myself that we are living in the last days of American capitalism and imperialism. These are the last days. Uh, these are the last days. These are the end. This is the end, right? And that, you know, so many of the greatest revolutionaries would be killed, would kill to be in our shoes. Joe Hill is jealous of us. Fred Hampton is jealous of us. Uh, Gus Hall, William Z. Foster are jealous of us because as much as in their time there was a lot of revolutionary organizing, a lot of resistance, they did not live in a period where we could actually see the overthrow of American imperialism, where we could actually see the United States start to move towards socialism. But we are now living in a period where that is possible. It wasn't possible in the 1930s wasn't possible in the 1960s, but it is possible now. Uh, we are entering the beginnings of a revolutionary period in the United States. Um, and these are very much the last days of American imperialism. However, we have to keep in mind the words of Rosa Luxemburg, uh, who said socialism or barbarism. There is no guarantee that out of this will come a higher stage, a higher plane. There's no guarantee of that. Um, you know, the US, US society could still deteriorate uh, into barbarism, right? You know, like the Roman Empire. When the Roman Empire fell, it didn't lead to a higher plane, to a higher form of civilization. The Roman Empire deteriorated into something that was worse, as bad as the Roman Empire was. We don't support the Roman Empire. But instead of the Roman Empire moving to a more progressive society, the Roman Empire deteriorated into barbarism. And Rosa Luxemburg said that imperialism, 
uh, capitalism and its monopoly stage of imperialism would ultimately lead uh, to deterioration without uh, into barbarism, without the conscious intervention of the working class. And that's what we have to do. If we don't effectively intervene in these times, uh, we will see a society that is worse, that is much less stable, that is much less secure uh, than, than American capitalism is. We're, we're seeing the deterioration of imperialism into barbarism. However, if we intervene with city builder socialism, that could change. Russia, uh, or still Cuba, immigration. Um, or Syria. Okay. Our enemy is on Wall Street. Our enemy is in the Pentagon, and our enemy is in the London Stock Exchange. That is who the enemy of the American people is. Yeah. So that's important to keep in mind as well. So amid these important times, as I have many times emphasized on these lives, uh, you know, this isn't just the entertainment. Uh, this isn't just commentary. Uh, you know, as class analysis says, city building socialism is the only way out. And the synthetic left is leading people astray. The woke cult that supports the Democrats, that, uh, that thinks real socialists are Nazis and, you know, and wants to exterminate all of us that, you know, basically thinks we should all be murdered because we're, we're not supporting the war against Russia. Uh, you know, the, the right wing that believes in free market libertarianism and promotes anti-immigrant bigotry. Neither of these forces have the answer. The synthetic left and the right wing both don't have the solution. Only real city builder socialism is the solution. Only the politics of Xi Jinping, uh, the politics of, of the leadership of Vietnam, the politics of the Cuban Revolution, the politics of, of Nicaragua and Bolivarianism, only the 21st century city builder socialist tendency. Only this movement we're seeing around the world of governments of action that fight for working families against the big monopolies and corporations. That's the only way out of the nightmare, the pending nightmare that we're seeing in US society. Um, that's really the only way we can get out of this. And, and that among US politics, other than us, right, the Center for Political Innovation and the groups we're aligned with, people like Jimmy Dore, People like Jackson Hinkle, people like Infrared and Haas, people like Working Class Revolt, uh, you know, people like um, people like Peter Coffin, uh, you know, uh, other than those folks, right? Um, at this point, um, at this point, we're not seeing city builder politics, and so those of us who actually understand city builder socialism, we have a responsibility. We have to take action. From what source? Um, um, okay. Why do they hate Russia? But we have to take action. I mean, we have no other choice if we really understand uh, that we need an optimistic, constructive socialism. We need the American people to understand that socialism isn't about destroying America. It's about saving America from the nightmare of capitalism, the nightmare of the unfolding decay of the capitalist system and moving towards socialism with American characteristics, a socialism crafted to address the crisis and the situation in our country. Um, if, if we understand that, we're obligated to do something about it. Um, and so, for those of you who may not be aware, um, if you're a member of the city uh, or of, of, of the Center for Political Innovation, um, we are having, we are having, we need an economy that serves the people, not the very wealthy few. Exactly, David Fox. We are having our national gathering. Um, our national four-day gathering is taking place in Kansas. Um, so, actually, Lily Goldblatt, the retreat coordinator, uh, has put together this message. Uh, to invite people to the retreat. Um, you have to be a member of the CPI to come, but if you join the CPI, you'll be invited. 
um, you can join the CPI down below. Um, but Lily Goldklang is actually, she's the retreat, retreat coordinator, and she made this video message, and we just finished it. Um, it's going to be posted probably later tonight, uh, or it'll be posted on the social media of the Center for Political Innovation. But we just finished uh, editing and putting together this video message from Lily Goldklang. Um, and so we're going to we're going to put it up here uh, for you to watch. Uh, this is the video message invitation to our national gathering in Kansas. Comrades, I'm sending you this message because we're living in very serious times and the stakes are getting higher. My name is Lily Goldplank and I'm reaching out to you as the coordinator of the Center for Political Innovations four day national gathering set take place Wednesday through Sunday. June 22nd through 26th in the U.S. state of Kansas. As Joe Biden pushes harder and harder to expand the NATO confrontation with Russia and Ukraine, the ultra-rich and their sinister agenda of building a low-wage police state at home are marching ahead. Those of us who understand the objective laws of history know that the problem is rooted in the breakdown of the capitalist system on a global scale. We also understand the role of conscious revolutionaries and anti-imperialists here in the United States is essential. While the synthetic left has given its middle finger to the working families struggling to pay their bills amidst inflation, the only real opposition comes from the right wing, which espouses free market insanity and delusional conspiracy narratives. Where is Joe Hill? Where is Fred Hampton? Where is Elizabeth Burley Flynn? Where is William Z. Foster? The tradition of scientific socialism and class struggle populism is needed more than ever as political discourse in America deteriorates along with living standards. Only a government of action that fights for working families can save America from the ongoing crisis. Kansas is a beautiful state in America's rural heart. It's where John Brown fought back against pro-slavery militias and stood his ground for the inalienable right of all people to be free. It's also the home state of Superman, the Man of Steel, the fictional character who incarnates the anti-racist, anti-fascist, and progressive ideals of the Roosevelt years. And it was probably at least somewhat inspired by the real Man of Steel, Joseph Stalin. If you join us this June, you will meet a number of like-minded people who are committed to the project of 21st Century Socialism. You will get to engage directly with Caleb Maupin, the ideological founder of the city-building tendency, and a consistent voice of reason amidst the sea of insanity. In addition, you will also get to meet and hear musical performances by David Robux the progressive songwriter, who learns the real skills of organizing and building real communities of solidarity, and participate in discussions wrangling with the big questions of We want you to spend four days learning, engaging, relaxing, and building community with other revolutionary conjurers during these hard times. Our aim is for you to return back home with more skills, more connections, and more revolutionary enthusiasm than ever before as we prepare for another year of intense tests and challenges for our growing movement. While we will ask a small donation from each attendee to cover the costs of housing and food, we realize that these are hard times and want to give special priority to working class youth who may not have the resources but are willing to give themselves to this movement. If you are unable to attend, we ask that you please donate to make it possible for someone else to get the revolutionary training needed for the tasks ahead. Now is the time to make commitments to anti-imperialism. Real organizations of resistance and communities of solidarity must be constructed. Come support our organization and participate in this four-day gathering. As the founder of the Center for Political Innovation, Caleb Moppin said recently, if you want to build a ship that can withstand a heavy storm, you don't wait until the storm has arrived in order to build it. Time is running out. Your decisions could be vital. Dare to struggle, dare to win. 
to RSVP to the retreat, please send a direct email to me, goldclanglily at gmail.com. Goldclanglily at gmail.com. See you there. All right. That was a great message from Lily. Uh, so if you want to come to the retreat, all you have to do is join the Center for Political Innovation, and then you'll be invited. And from there, uh, we will uh, send you the invitation. single-minded son of the working class, rescuing an enchained race and carrying out the second American revolution. All right. So I just wanted to get that message out there. Um, writing down the super chats. Got one more one more that I saw up here. Um, the government of action. Socialism in the English language was Robert Owen. Russell control away from Wall Street. community in Indiana called New Harmony and gave lectures on socialism to joint sessions of the U.S. Congress. And when we move towards social so it's going to be a great four days um so i hope that you will join us a number of people have signed up already so if you're a member of the center for political innovation and you want to come by all means just rsvp uh send lily your rsvp email that you want to come and if you uh if you are not a yet a member of the center for political innovation all you have to do is sign up below uh we have the goal of 1000 members by may 1st 2023 1k by may now at this point we have almost 200 members um, but we are going to start rapidly expanding. We're going to have a big event August 6th in Chicago. So, um, yeah, at, at, you know, that's kind of our goal. We're expanding. I am going to be in Seattle and in Portland this weekend. Um, I'll actually be in, in, in the Pacific Northwest this weekend. I'm taking a flight Friday evening. I'm flying out to the Pacific Northwest. So if you're an activist there and you're involved, by all means, contact the local organizers. We're not having any public events, but we're going to have a couple, you know, local meetups for people that are part of this community. So by all means, uh, folks that are in the Pacific Northwest, I can't wait to see you. It's going to be awesome. Uh, was Napoleon a positive figure? William Z. Foster, Joe Hill, Eugene Debs, and so many revolutionaries. So that'll be good. Um, it'll be good to see you. Um, and uh, yeah, that should be that should be good. Um, and uh, yeah, um, so I guess I just I'm glad I could give you that message. We're going to post it later, but it should be a great four day gathering in Kansas. It's going to be awesome. So I just wanted to show you that video. Now, the other thing I wanted to talk about here in my opening remarks. And it is this vision and this tone. The other thing I wanted to just quickly talk about is um, we have now finally published Fidel Castro exposes the synthetic left. And uh, I want to say that Robert Lawrence, uh, who's the editor of this, uh, he put this book together. Um, it was, it, you know, I had the idea of publishing it. It was really Robert who did the hard work. He got the cover laid out. He got the, the interior, you know, the pages laid out. I wrote the introduction. But Robert Lawrence made this book happen. He was in touch with the Cuban embassy and others to make sure we had the proper permissions. He then stayed on top of getting it published. Uh, he did a really good job with this book. This book is, it turned out really nice. I got my first shipment of books today. Um, and I, I opened them up and I thought, this is, this is a win. This is good. This is really good stuff. I'm really happy with how this book turned out. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, if you want to get a copy, uh, you can do that. I'm actually going to read to you the introduction to Fidel Castro Exposes the Synthetic Left. Um, I'm just going to read you the introduction to the book uh, because this is not a short book, mind you. This is almost 300 pages of the writings of Fidel Castro. The columns uh, that he wrote where he talked about the CIA and drugs, he talked about Obama, he talked about, you know, the, the brainwashing uh, from mainstream media. And um, yeah, I mean, it's really tremendous. And Amazon banned this book, basically. They would refuse to publish it. They kept insisting we didn't have the copyrights when we do. 
Uh, we, we showed them backwards and forwards. This was a public domain book. They still wouldn't publish it. So you buy it, you ain't buying it from Amazon. Uh, the online book distributor is linked below. Um, you won't be buying it from Amazon because they banned it. Um, but uh, this is this is our book, Fidel Castro's writings on the synthetic left. And so I'm just going to read you. I am going to read you uh, the introduction um, to the book that I wrote. Um, so there you go. This is my introduction that I wrote to Fidel Castro exposes the synthetic left. Fidel Castro is loved by the progressive people of the world. He led the national liberation struggle and socialist revolution on the island of Cuba. In doing so, he brought literacy, employment, and health care to millions of people. The Cuban educational system has been praised by renowned educational scholars like Jonathan Kozel. And Ban Ki-moon described Cuba's medical school as the greatest in the world. But the achievements of the Cuban revolution, which Fidel Castro led, go far beyond the island 90 miles south of Florida. Cuba has always stood with oppressed people fighting for their freedom. Cuba sent soldiers to defend Angola from an invasion. Cuba was praised excessively by Nelson Mandela for its relentless support for the struggle against apartheid in South Africa. Cuba's literacy volunteers and medical aid have touched the lives of people on almost every continent. Despite a criminal blockade and unending efforts to topple the Communist Party, the Cuban Revolution has a list of accomplishments that continue to grow. Fidel Castro, along with his brother Raul Castro and Che Guevara, was the symbol of a dramatic transformation that improved millions of lives. While many left-wing and progressive-minded people in the United States, from Danny Glover to Michael Moore, have praised Cuba's achievements, among leftist circles in the United States, there is a lack of willingness to listen to what Fidel Castro actually said. Despite a lot of projection from U.S. leftists, Fidel Castro was not a counterculture 1960s hippie or a woke hipster. The ideology Castro stood for was not intersectionality or postmodernism, but rather Marxism-Leninism. Fidel Castro stood in solidarity with North Korea, Iran, Venezuela, and every anti-imperialist country that challenged U.S. imperialism. Castro maintained that both China and Vietnam were indeed socialist societies, and encouraged the Cuban communists to study their market reforms in order to modernize Cuba. In 2014, Fidel Castro wrote, Xi Jinping is one of the strongest and most capable revolutionary leaders I have met in my life. Fidel Castro opposed drug use, and Cuba has some of the strictest anti-drug policies of any country in the world. Tourists and other visitors to the island are always warned about the harsh consequences of being caught with drugs, even marijuana. Cuban children wear uniforms, march in formation, and pledge each morning that they will live like Che Guevara. Fidel Castro was a leftist, but his ideology was not liberal deconstructionism of American academics. Fidel Castro was illiberal and anti-imperialist, and instead of deconstructing Cubans with a narrative of identity politics, he unified them as a solid block against the Wall Street monopolists and their military threats. 
This book has been assembled by the Center for Political Innovation, edited by Robert Lawrence, to give voice to what Fidel Castro actually believed and contrast it with the woke or synthetic leftism being promoted in U.S. society. This book is published in the hopes that U.S. leftists will abandon their pro-imperialist destructive tendencies as well as their witch hunting of so-called red browns and nazbols and instead work to develop a progressive, optimistic, constructive socialism. Millions of young Americans are angry at U.S. capitalism and imperialism and open to learning about socialism. They need to understand what socialism means and that there is no one more qualified to teach it to them than someone who built a strong socialist country just 90 miles south of the United States. That is the introduction. Not a long introduction, mind you. That is the introduction. Now, because this book has just been published, I actually sat down and read it all this afternoon. This afternoon, I had some free time on my hands. So I read the book this afternoon. And I got to say, Robert Lawrence did a great job of picking essay. Um, I guess I'll summarize for you. The first two essays that Fidel Castro, that are in here, um, you know, the world government part one, the world government part two, Fidel Castro quotes, uh, quotes this writer, Daniel Estula. Uh, and Daniel Estula uh, writes uh, about how U.S. mainstream media brainwashes people. And how since the uh, the 1920s and 30s, but especially after the Second World War, U.S. mainstream media, uh, rock music, MTV, has been cultivated to brainwash, to kind of get Americans into a hypnotic state so they don't seriously think about politics and how that accompanied MKUltra. And he talks about how Western media is brainwashing. MTV is brainwashing. Uh, you know, the Beatles were cultivated to kind of get people into a trance and and how basically, uh, you know, you know, there's a reason that they have TV screens everywhere in the United States, you know, just pumping, pumping propaganda at you 24-7. It's to keep you from thinking. And and he's talking especially about the minds of young people and how how important it is to keep that out of Cuba. I mean, it, that that stuff was really great. Um, he has a section about imperialism and drugs, and he talks about how in Bolivia, uh, you know, they're fighting for the right of the people to drink coca tea because that's not cocaine, um, and how the imperialists are being hypocritical and attacking Bolivia over the coca tea because they're the main, you know, drug dealers around the world. They're tied up with the narco gangs, etc. Um, he gives us, uh, he, he remarks about, you know, the, the Ninth Congress of the Young Communist League of Cuba and the future of young people and what socialism means for young people. He talks about uh, North Korea and how Obama was threatening war against North Korea. A great essay about that and about how Obama is like pushing us, uh, pushing us um, basically to, to World War III at the time and how North Korea has been, you know, brutally attacked and how, uh, you know, the U.S. imperialists threatened atomic bombs against them. He talks about the Soviet Union and the victory over fascism. Uh, he talks about the Federal Reserve System and where it came from and how the U.S. economy is basically rigged by the big banks. Um, he talks about the killing machine, is what he calls the, the military-industrial complex, the killing machine. And he goes into detail about how basically you know, the U.S. economy is based on war and, and destruction. He talks about how Bush, George W. Bush, is somebody who is psychological. He does like a psychoanalysis of, of George W. Bush. It's fascinating. He says, Bush expects everything will be solved with a bag. And he talks about how Bush, if you read his facial expressions, 
Uh, he, he's not actually very smart. He doesn't really know what's going on. He just has a set of phrases that are memorized, and, and he, he doesn't quite know how to react with people. He has kind of a psychoanalysis of President Bush that I thought was fascinating. Um, he talks about Obama getting the Nobel Prize. Um, he talks about Hugo Chavez and what made Hugo Chavez a political genius and how, like, he talks about Hugo Chavez giving this nine-hour speech, uh, this nine-hour speech on how to improve the country. And it's interrupted by this this right-wing woman who just interrupts Hugo Chavez in the middle of his speech. And uh, Hugo Chavez just lets her talk and he lets her just give all these personal attacks on him, interrupting his big nine hour speech. And then afterwards, he just makes some kind of joke and then just keeps speaking for another nine hours or something. I mean, it's like amazing about how Hugo Chavez was like a totally disciplined person uh, who had amazing self-control. Um, he talks about Nicaragua. Uh, there's an essay, The Overwhelming Victory of Daniel and the FSLN, talking about Nicaragua. And the last section, I mean, this is amazing. I mean, we didn't even plan this. I mean, it's like, you know, we, we put this together a couple months ago and then we battled with Amazon. But the last section is about food sovereignty and the food crisis and how he's basically predicting that because of U.S. imperialism, there's going to be food shortages all over the world. This is really important stuff. And what I really think is really good about this, this book is I was reading I was reading the essays is that Fidel, Fidel is speaking to young people. And he was writing these essays before he died, right? This was after he retired. When he stepped down, when he was no longer playing a political role, he had a column in the daily newspaper in Cuba. In the grandma daily newspaper, he had these columns, the reflections. And it's like he's saying, like, before I go, I want to make uh, some things clear. And he's especially speaking to the young kids a lot addressed to the youth of cuba and he tells them beware of american media it's brainwashing it's hypnosis it's it's trying to make you stupider it's trying to prevent your ability to think um he says you know stay away from drugs because drugs you know they, they seem all revolutionary but they're actually a tool of the imperialists uh he's saying that barack obama is a fraud and a con man uh he's he's urging people to be like you know to look up to hugo chavez and try to be a disciplined self-controlled person like hugo chavez um you know i mean it, it's really something special uh, robert did a great job picking out these essays um and putting this book together and so that's that's this is the latest center for political innovation book uh, fidel castro exposes the synthetic lab and anyone who reads this um the second uh, that you hear one of these these people on Twitter who, who's decided that they're going to join the pro-imperialist campaign against me, uh, the second uh, you hear one of them, you know, talk shit about me, everything they say about me is way more true about Fidel Castro. Fidel Castro, if you think I'm an asshole, read about Fidel Castro. Read about Fidel Castro because, you know, Fidel Castro, that, that socialism, as I have discovered in my life experience, socialism around the world is not like the synthetic left. Fidel Castro and real communism is not the synthetic left. It's anti-imperialism, it's discipline, it's people being proud of who they are, loving their country, loving their community, and hating the monopolistic imperialists that are trying to destroy human life. It's, it's, it's amazing stuff, right? And, and, you know, and Fidel Castro, he talks about climate change, um, he, talks about, uh, he talks about the food crisis, he talks about so many issues. So this is our latest book, Fidel Castro Exposes the Synthetic Left. Uh, you can order it. The link is down below. Uh, you can't get it on Amazon because Amazon told us they wouldn't.
wouldn't run it. They, they insisted it was copyrighted, even though we showed them that it wasn't. Uh, so if you want to get your hands on it, you got to order it. We got it, another book distributor, uh, you know, and uh, yeah, I am really glad we put this out. Great work, Robert. I'm really happy with your work here. This is good stuff. Um, so glad that we did this. So uh, yeah, um, that's kind of that's kind of what I had in mind for my opening remarks tonight. Uh, great video from Lily inviting you to the retreat. Um, you know, uh, uh, just wanted to show you the new book uh, available that El Castro poses the synthetic left. And I guess, folks, on that note, um, why don't we do the roll call and then I'll just start answering your super chat questions for the rest of the night. Um, I think that's how we're going to do it. Um, writing down your super chat questions. So names and locations, folks. Names and locations. I'll call you out as I see you. Names and locations. Names and locations. Call you out as I see you. And then from there, uh, we will, uh, at that point, we'll do the uh, the super chat. So who's with us tonight? Who is with us tonight? Who is with us tonight? All right. Jamie in St. Paul is the first name I see. Temple City, California after that. Io Hillary in New York City is with us. Parasocialite, Tristan in Maryland. Micah in Las Vegas. Bergen County. Antonio in Brazil. Bendigo. David Fox. Bismuth in Wisconsin. Great YouTube channel. Check out Bismuth. He's doing great stuff. Dario from Brooklyn. Colin from Massachusetts. Shout out to you, Colin. Right. Uh, we got Baltimore. Matt, uh, we got Don D in NYC. Shout out to you, Don D. Good stuff. Good work. George in Sydney. We got Beirut, Lebanon. Uh, we got Ron from St. Louis. Danny from Illinois. Gavin in Illinois. Greenland. Uh, St. David's, Bermuda. Houston, Texas. Adam in Salt Lake City. Um, Houston, Texas. Bob Troy in New York. Mark Sherrill in New York. Novato, California. Mark Sherrill in New York. Uh, Steve in Brisbane, Australia. Uh, OYMX. OYMX does great videos, by the way. He just did this great video using my talk from the conference. Go subscribe right now to OYMX channel. Great stuff um, from New Zealand. Leo and Mimi from Mexico. Uh, uh, CP in Chicago. You're the Communist Party of Chicago, huh? All right. We got Tampa, Florida, USA, Herb Bryant. We got Marissa in Washington. Shout out to you. And thank you, Herb Bryant, for the super chat. Calgary, Canada, Miami, Florida. We got uh, Yao in Taiwan. We got uh, Steve in, in Georgia, Montezuma, North Pole, uh, Scat. Uh, we got, um, we got uh, Pittsburgh. Um, we got uh, Ash, CPI, Chicago land. Very good. Mosin from Iran. Very, very good. Very, very, very good. Very, very, very good. Very, very, very good stuff. So glad to have you all here with us tonight, folks. Good stuff. So glad to have you all here. We're having a great time. Great stuff. John Witte in Houston is with us. Very good. Yada Yisrael in Chicago is with us. Very, very good. Um, Kieran from San Diego is with us. Very, very good. Glad to have you here, Kieran from San Diego. All right. Should we start answering super chat questions? All right. Keep them rolling in, folks. Uh, at this point, we're starting to answer super chat questions. So if you have a question, I will answer it, and that's how we'll do it. Khomeini and the Islamic Revolution. Well, um, Grand Ayatollah Ali said Khamenei is the current leader of Iran. Uh, he was not the first one. It was Khomeini. Um, it was uh, Rohala Khomeini. Uh, was the leader of the Islamic Revolution. And he was a, a Shia Muslim cleric um, in Iran uh, who uh, was critical of the Shah of Iran. Uh, he was more conservative than the Shah of Iran. 
Uh, when the Shah of Iran started implementing modern reforms, he went into exile in the 1960s because he was known to be a, a critic of the Shah. Uh, he was a very, very religious, um, uh, conservative, you know, Ayatollah, Shia Muslim cleric. He went into exile uh, in Britain and in France. He was in exile, and they smuggled tapes of him, uh, cassette tapes, into Iran. And a lot of people in the military and a lot of people in Iran in general would listen to these illegal smuggled cassette tapes of Ayatollah Khomeini. Um, and Khomeini, you know, he had this, you know, religious fanatical devotion. Um, if you read his writings during the 1970s, uh, you know, the world was really changing during the 1970s. And Khomeini had been this fanatical religious figure uh, who was very conservative, much more conservative than the Shah, didn't approve of a lot of the Shah's modernist reforms. But because the world was changing so much in like the late 60s and the early 70s, Khomeini's writings started to change also. Uh, and if you read Khomeini's writings, uh, you know, his writings in the 1970s are very anti-imperialist. Um, when I was in Iran, they gave me books about, you know, what is Shia Islam, you know, the history of the Islamic revolution. And, you know, these books sound like Marxist texts almost. It begins with like, history is made by great revolutionaries and it's driven forward by great revolutionaries. And, you know, Shia Islam has some very, very revolutionary content in it because, um, you know, at the time, uh, you know, following the death uh, of the prophet Muhammad, uh, there was there was division in the what they call the caliphate or the Islamic Empire, um, and there was really a fight between the aristocracy uh, and you know you know the feudal kind of rulers of the Islamic Empire and the merchants, uh, the mercantile classes, and uh, the mercantile classes basically went after and persecuted the descendants and relatives of Muhammad. Um, because they didn't want them to, to you know, hold on and, and to maintain power. Um, and so, you know, there was, you know, there was a, you know, the, the, the imams that the Shia talk about, uh, the, the imams, uh, they, they rallied the people uh, against the merchants, against the wealthy merchants uh, who, were, who were, you know, oppressing people and, you know, you know, had great wealth in their hands. I believe Imam Ali, uh, he said that never has he seen great wealth piled up anywhere without great violations of rights all around him. Um, and they said that to stand with the oppressed uh, is, is one of the most important things in the world. Um, to, to be a martyr for the cause of justice is one of the most important things in the world. Um, I believe uh, Imam, was it Imam Hussein? Uh, he said, this world is a stinking corpse and anyone who lives in this world uh, will die with it, meaning that you should do, be doing what's right and be striving to go to heaven when you die, not be striving to, to do what's right. And that that the imams uh, of, of the caliphate, uh, they became kind of the champions of the peasants and the poor people against the merchants, the merchant class. And, uh, you know, you read about the martyrdom of Imam Ali, you read about the, the martyrdom of Imam Hussein, you know, they, these people were murdered, they were killed. Um, and, you know, the battle, battle of Karbala uh, that took place, um, you know, Karbala is in Iraq. Um, and it's uh, the site where there was a battle, uh, a battle in which, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the imams and, and the, the family, the descendants of Muhammad were, were slaughtered. Um, and the Shia, the Shia Islamic tradition really emphasizes martyrdom and sacrifice, standing against oppression, standing for justice, etc. Um, and in the 1970s, Khomeini very much became a big supporter of the black freedom struggle in the United States. Uh, talked about Malcolm X being a great revolutionary hero 
Khomeini also talked about um, about you know the Irish people and their struggle against imperialism, the struggle of the of the black people against apartheid in South Africa, and that Khomeini very much became this kind of revolutionary anti-imperialist. That he was he was somebody who was always against the West and he was always very very strictly religious and Islamic. But because of what was happening in the world, Khomeini you know, very much became, you know, his religious teachings became aligned with that. Now, he didn't believe in communism, he made clear, because communism was secular. Um, and he talked about how they needed to oppose the the economic and military imperialism of the West, but they also needed to oppose the uh, the social imperialism of the East. It's kind of like Mao, we're talking about Soviet social imperialism, but he argued that the communists export their atheist ideology and that that is not good. And the Western capitalists, they export, you know, economic domination and their military aggression. So that's not good. So his slogan is he said, neither East nor West, meaning that we're not for the Soviet Union or the United States. And he said, not capitalism, but Islam. That was what he said. We're for not capitalism, but Islam. Meaning that uh, that you know they're not Marxists or socialists, but they're also not in favor of capitalism. Not capitalism, but Islam. Neither East nor West. And then he said, war of poverty against wealth. Meaning that the poor people of the world should rise up against those who who have the wealth. Um, and that was the Islamic Revolution, right? Uh, those were kind of the slogans that Khomeini popularized. And you know, in Iran, you had protesters being killed. And so you had the Shah, who was this brutal U.S.-backed dictator who had like this secret police force called Sabak that would torture people and did horrendous things. And and so um, you know, 1979, there was a, a a political crisis in Iran, and a number of protesters were shot down in the street. And and the people were really angry at the Shah of Iran for the fact that he had. Uh, gunned down peaceful protesters and so because of that um they had a uh, like he declared a national holiday like a day of mourning for the country to calm down um and then in response to that um you know instead of calming down uh, the whole country went out and protested basically uh, it was kind of a dumb move on the part of the shah he thought well i'm gonna people like me i'm gonna understand and i'll declare a national holiday but then people used that national holiday to go out into the streets and protest, and there were uprisings and protests all over Iran. And amid all that turmoil, Khomeini, um, you know, who was in exile, he got on a plane and he came back to Iran. And at the airport, thousands of people greeted him. And it, you know, within the military, there were many military leaders in the the, the army who were admirers of Khomeini. And there were many many people in the country and the police and local governments and. Uh, you know, they um, basically, he came back to the country in the middle of this revolutionary upsurge uh, and Khomeini came back to Iran and, um, you know, he, he, you know, basically led the Islamic revolution. Uh, the, the government of Iran was toppled. Uh, the Shah, the, the, uh, the Pahlavi monarchy was, was toppled. And the Islamic Republic, with a new constitution, was declared. Khomeini uh, was the leader of the Islamic Republic, right? The Islamic Revolutionary Party uh, was the, the new party that was created. And and you had the Islamic Republic of Iran being created. Um, and that's, uh, that's 1979. Um, then what happened? Well, um, you know, at that point, um, you know, the United States, the U.S. Embassy, in Iran, um, Italy and Germany, social democracy led to fascism. Okay, we'll write that down. 
All right. And especially when I was there, I talked to many a PhD having fellows, and they all had the same take on what's going on with the shift of the multipolar world right now. They all said that the United States and its position is wavering, and it is finally coming to a point where they are not the dominant hegemony. There is something more out there now. Now is a very important time. Alrighty. Wrote it down. Um, and um, the other thing to remember, so so Khomeini came to power, he had the Islamic Revolution. Um, but there were a lot of different factions in, in Iran at the time. So the Islamic Revolutionary Party, they were the current that became the new the new ruling party. Um, and but then after that, um, you know, there were there was the two day party, which was the People's Party, which was the Communist Party. It was like the Marxist Leninist Party of Iran. Uh, there were the Fedayeen, uh, which were like Maoists. Uh, they want, were waging like guerrilla warfare, trying to organize the peasantry in the countryside of Iran. And then you had the Mujahideen Ekalk, uh, the People's Holy Warriors, they were called. Um, you know, and they were a strange Islamo-Marxist religious cult. Um, and there were different views. Um, China's opinion on Trotsky. Uh, there were different views. But no, you want to make a difference in the world. You want to make the world a better place. You know, within the Islamic Revolutionary Camp, there were some clerics uh, who were more sympathetic to communism. Uh, you know, and then there were some clerics that said communism is absolutely an apostasy. Um, <laughs> there you go, right? Uh, communism is abs absolutely an apostasy. We must have no tolerance for it. And then there were some clerics that said, well, communism is good. It just needs God. Without God, you can't have communism. There was like a, a spectrum of opinion in Iran about communism. And the communist groups certainly existed, and they were illegal under the Shah, but under the Islamic Revolution, at first, the communist groups were very visible. And so in Tehran and Mashhad and the capital cities, you would see people marching with red flags. You'd see communist groups very openly organizing. Um, but then Iraq invaded Iran. Um, Iraq invaded Iran. And Iraq was a Soviet-aligned country. It was Ba'athist Arab socialism. It had most of its guns, you know, both, most of its weapons came from the Soviet Union. So at that point, there was a feeling uh, that if you were a communist, you were supporting Iraq. Um, so there started to be a crackdown on um, on communist groups because they said basically we're fighting a war against the Iraqi invaders and Iraq is a secular, you know, Ba'ath socialist, Marxist, Soviet-aligned government. So they started to crack down. And then and then Khomeini fired. There was a cleric who was known for making pro-Soviet statements, pro-Marxist statements. And, and Khomeini fired him. Um, he, he dismissed him because he said, you know, we can't be having that because Iraq has invaded us. Iraq is our enemy. So uh, after this cleric was fired, the Mujahideen Ekal, which was the Islamo-Marxist cult, basically. They were, you know, there were the three major communist groups, the, the Tudeh Party, the Fedayeen, and then the People's Mujahideen, they were called the MEK. The, the MEK, which were the People's Mujahideen or the you know, Mujahideen Kalk, MEK, right? Um, in response to this, this pro-Soviet cleric getting, getting fired, um, they went on a bombing campaign um, and they blew up the parliament and they killed 81 members of the parliament. Can you imagine that? That would be like in the United States, you know, the U.S. Congress, you know, being attacked and, and, and like 81 members of the Congress being killed. Can you imagine that? I mean, that's, that is like, that's like a 9-11, okay? Um, 
You know, it's like a huge terrorist attack, right? Like it was, that happened, right? 81 parliament members killed, right? Um, you know, uh, they, um, you know, they, they would go to the press conferences of, of leaders and blow them up. And in fact, the Supreme Leader, Khamenei, the current Supreme Leader of Iran, he can't move one of his arms because he was giving a press conference at one point. And a Mujahideen call person showed up with a, a bomb disguised as a tape recorder, and it blew up, and so he can't move one of his arms. And, I mean, they just assassinated people, and they murdered people, um, and uh, it was, it was, you know, I mean, it was like, it was just this campaign of terrorism. So in response to that, they outlawed the Communist Party because this Communist group, Mujahideen Kalk, was, was on a killing spree, and they were being invaded by Iraq. And so... In the aftermath of the Islamic, um, the Islamic Revolution, and in response to the the terrorism that they endured, where members of, of you know of, of Parliament were being bombed and killed, and and shootings and assassinations, and this foreign invasion by a Soviet-aligned country, at that point, Iran uh, outlawed. Uh, they outlawed communist groups. Um, but a lot of the communist groups, you know, they they adjusted. And this is one thing that many people point out. There were a lot of communist groups that said, okay, we can't be communist anymore. And we do support Khomeini because he's anti-imperialist. He's fighting the imperialists. He's not a socialist. We're socialist, but he's anti-imperialist. So a lot of communist groups just, like, changed their name and adopted to be something that was more in line with religious teachings. They'd be like the the Islamic Revolutionary Student Association or something like that. And that's actually true. And that a lot of the people in Iran that are supporters, even up to today, that are supporters of the Republic, are influenced by Marxism. In Iranian universities, they study Marx and they study Lenin's books on imperialism to understand how Iran has been oppressed and why the USA is, is the main danger. And it, even up to today, Iran is friendly with Russia and China. It's friendly with Cuba and Venezuela and the Bolivarian countries. Iran very much sees itself as a revolutionary anti-imperialist country. They say that they are neither socialist or capitalist. They just have the Islamic system, which rejects both capitalism and Marxism. But they are very much in the global socialist camp. That's really important. So then, and then the other thing to remember is that so right after Khomeini took power, um, he realized that in order to keep the revolution going, he would have to mobilize the public. So he formed these things called Basij councils. Uh, and in every neighborhood, they have this in Iran. They're called the Basij. And Basij means mobilized oppressed, is what it means. The mobilized oppressed. Mobilizations of the oppressed. And every neighborhood has one. And it's basically a Soviet. It's like a workers' council. It's a community assembly where men and women get together, the women sit on one side, the men sit on the other side, uh, you know, because it's Islamic and traditional, um, you know, and they get together and they debate policy in the neighborhood and they set the agenda and they listen to the Supreme Leader's speeches and they say, how can we carry out the Supreme Leader's wishes uh, in, the, in the neighborhood? How can we enforce it? They have volunteers who kind of walk through the streets to look for any suspicious behavior. When I was in Iran, it was kind of neat. I was there making a documentary with a film crew and we would frequently get confronted by the Basij. Because they don't know who I'm just some white guy walking around talking English, you know, and I've got a film crew with me. And, you know, frequently somebody it would just look like a normal person. You never know. And they would walk up to us and be like, hey, who are you? And they'd pull out their like badge. And these were, they weren't police. They were siege volunteers, right? Who they took on the job of basically patrolling the neighborhood. Um, patrolling the neighborhood in order to uh, to make sure that it was safe and all. I thought it was really neat, right? So, you know, and of course, I mean, we showed them that we had permission to make this film. We didn't have a problem, but, you know, I mean, that's how how involved the government is. Instead of having cops patrol the streets, they have the Basij, like the people, basically control the, the streets. And the Basij is like 
like a community assembly, like a workers' council. Um, when Iraq invaded, Khomeini declared a uh, uh, construction jihad, he called. Um, and it was basically like a five-year plan. It was like what Stalin did with the five-year plan, where the people went out and built new hospitals and built new power plants. And it was like, it was, you know, they went out and organized, right? And that Khomeini was definitely a populist and he was definitely against capitalism. And he was definitely with, you know, with Che Guevara and Cuba and definitely with, uh, with, with South Africa against apartheid. And, you know, I mean, Iran is a revolutionary anti-imperialist country. Um, you know, not to say that there isn't a bourgeoisie in Iran, right? There is what, you know, like a national bourgeoisie of private capitalists. But those folks hate the government. They hate the revolution. Like you have to be there, you have to see it. It's like, yes, Iran does have a big market sector and there are a lot of wealthy Iranians in Northern Tehran. Iran. Um, and those folks are there, but they hate Khomeini and they hate Khamenei and they hate the revolution and they're racist as fuck. Those folks, you know, are really racist and they think, you know, we're Persians. We're, you know, they would say to me, we're white people like you, you know, we're white people like you, Caleb. And now our country has been overrun by Arabs and Turkmen. You know, I mean, you know, the people, the, the counter-revolutionaries, the people in Northern Tehran who want to be like the United States, um, you know, um, you know, the people, that's that's a weird question. I wouldn't even put it that way. But um, the people, you know, I'll write it down. But um, the, um, you know, the people, the people in, in northern Tehran who are like the United States, um, who like the United States, who have like restaurants that look like McDonald's, who wear blue jeans all the time. Uh, you know, those people, yeah, they exist. The, you know, Iran definitely has a bourgeoisie, but they live in terror of the revolution. I mean, those folks, I mean, the, the Iranian government is against those folks. And those folks know it. And those folks are terrified of the Islamic revolution and they hate it. Um, you know, uh, so it's not as simple as you might think, right? It, and I've had a lot of people say, well, Iran is a bourgeois nationalist country. And it's like, no, if it was a bourgeois nationalist country, those folks would like it. Like, those folks are terrified of it, right? Um, you know, and if you talk to them, they all think Iran's socialist. They say Iran is really a communist country. You know, they all think Iran's a communist and socialist country. And, you know, I mean, Iran says that they are neither socialist nor capitalist. So it's not as simple as you might think. Um, I'm trying to, you know, think of other things. I mean, you know, the hostage crisis that happened, right? So the CIA, um, you know, the CIA uh, over, you know, you know, was intervening in Iran um, and the U.S. embassy, uh, the, the basically the Islamic Revolution, you know, they, they alleged the United States was trying to break apart Iran. They were supporting Arab separatists and they were supporting Kurdish separatists. Um, and the USA denied it. Well, the Islamic Revolutionary students, uh, they seized control of the U.S. embassy uh, and they took the people inside as hostages. Um, and they let all the black people go and they let all the women go, except for the ones that were card carrying CIA agents. Um, and they held the hostages. This is the, the, the Iran hostage crisis. And they found documents, all kinds of documents that they found that proved the United States was funding Arab separatists to break apart Iran. It was funding Kurdish separatists to break apart Iran. Um, you know, so, um, you know, uh, it, it's kind of fascinating uh, to read about. Um, so, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, the Islamic Revolution, um, you know, I mean, there's a lot going on there. 
Um, and, you know, the hostage crisis happened. Um, and, uh, um, you know, Ronald Reagan uh, basically used the hostage crisis to attack Jimmy Carter. Say Jimmy Carter is a soft president. He's weak and he's let our people be taken. But actually, Reagan was communicating with the uh, with the Iranians and asked the Iranians to keep the Americans hostage until he took office. So, you know, I mean, the idea that Ronald Reagan is some patriot who loves the United States is bullshit. I mean, he was basically trying to keep Americans, you know, trying to keep Americans being held hostage to help his politics. That that reveals that that Ronald Reagan is basically a traitor to the country, uh, to the United States. He didn't care about those hostages. He didn't care about the United States. That's an important point no one ever talks about. But Ronald Reagan, it's been proven, was actually talking to the Iranians and saying, please keep these Americans captive. Uh, so it'll help my political campaign. Um, and also part of the reason that Iran, and this is kind of fascinating to me, part of the reason that Iran didn't release the hostages until Jimmy Carter left office, it was the day that Ronald Reagan took the oath of office that the hostages were released. Um, part of the reason for that um, was because of the fact that, that Reagan, Ronald Reagan, was anti-Soviet. And Jimmy Carter, the Soviet Union felt like Jimmy Carter was a guy who would negotiate with them, with them more. And Iran wanted to make clear to the world they were not a Soviet-aligned country. Um, you know, uh, and so because of that, um, because of that, uh, you know, Iran made a point of taking a move that helped Ronald Reagan because they didn't want people to think they were a Soviet-aligned country. Um, I think it's kind of fascinating. Why is this making you cry, Jenny? I'm curious. Uh, but anyway, um, uh, Reza Pahlavi, son of the Shah, seems to have a lot of U.S. federal support. You think he's trying to stir things up? All right, we'll talk about that. Um, you know, um, um, so, uh, you know, I mean, that happened. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. I mean, I could go on. I've been to Iran a number of times. I've seen it up close. Uh, so I could, I could tell you a lot of different things about Iran. Um, you know, because Iran is, is a revolutionary country. Um, and in so many ways, it's anti-imperialist and it's, it's, you know, and it's been attacked. It's been subject to brutal sanctions. Um, and it stands with Palestine and it stands with people all over the world that are fighting for justice. Um, Iranian politics have shifted. They haven't been the same since since the revolution, right? In the late 80s, Iran took a strategic turn to the right wing, um, and a lot of communist uh, prisoners were executed. Uh, there was a, like in like 1988, 1989, there were mass executions of communist uh, prisoners. Um, and that was seen as, a, as kind of because Saddam Hussein was like, you know, becoming more and more of an enemy. Originally, Saddam Hussein, you know, at one point, at the beginning of the Iraq-Iran War, Saddam Hussein had been aligned with the United States. But as as the Iran Iraq-Iran War started going on, the United States actually you know started shifting to supporting Iran. And at that point, uh, when um, when you know when the the Iraq-Iran War was coming to an end, and the USA was kind of switching to supporting Iran against Iraq, at that point, Iran executed a lot of uh, communist political prisoners to make a point. That's a pretty ugly episode in the late 80s, the mass executions in Iran, 88, 89. Um, and in the early 90s, Iran was starting to, it seemed like Iran was starting to drift into the Western camp, right? The Soviet Union had fallen. Um, it seemed like the world was shifting. And Iraq was very much seen as like the main anti-imperialist country in the Middle East. Like the Middle East, you know, you know, Iraq, Saddam Hussein was, you know, fighting Israel. And so because of that, because of that, um, 
because of that, uh, then the, um, what do you call it? The, um, uh, you know, the Iranians started shifting into the U.S. camp, but then something happened, which is uh, the axis of evil speech. Um, you know, uh, you know, and after 9-11, George W. Bush gave a speech where he said that there's an axis of evil, and he named three countries, three countries that had nothing to do with each other. Iran, a Shia Muslim country, Iraq, Ba'athist Arab Socialism, two countries that hate each other, over a million people died in the war between Iraq and Iran, uh, and then uh, North Korea. And so because of that, because of those three things, uh, you know, because Iran was named as the axis of evil, uh, that made Iran say, wow, you know, if the United States really, uh, you know, is, is, you know, is, is, you know, going to let us, you know, quote unquote reform and open up or whatever, why are they doing that? Plus the oil prices, when Bush invaded Iraq, the oil prices shot up. Uh, and the oil prices are were the main way that the Iranian government gets its money, right? The government of Iran sells oil on the international market. The private sector, it's not oil, but the oil in Iran is through the government. And so because the oil prices went through the roof, then the, 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 the hardliners, the people that are more revolutionary in Iran that are tied to the government, they had more money. Uh, the USA called them the axis of evil, um, and and Ahmadinejad then took office. And Ahmadinejad uh, was a super revolutionary president. Um, favorite Iranian food. Okay, uh, you know, uh, was a super revolutionary president um, in so many ways. Um, you know, uh, he he really really played up. Um, you know, uh, the uh, the support for, um, for Cuba, for Venezuela. Uh, he condemned capitalism in his speeches, super anti-Israel. Um, and uh, Ahmadinejad said, look, we, we, we've signed the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, but one thing we have the right to do is to have nuclear power. And so they started developing nuclear power, which they're allowed to do. And every site in Iran that's a nuclear power site is monitored by the International Atomic Energy Agency. So at, at no point did they ever violate the, the treaty. They completely followed it. But regardless, the USA used that to say Iran is trying to develop an atomic bomb. And Iran is like, no, we're not. And you can look at every single site. We are not trying to develop an atomic bomb. We're just doing what we're allowed to do under the treaty, which is have, you know, nuclear energy. And so then Israel waged this big campaign. Iran is trying to get the atomic bomb. Uh, and then one of the main things that happened is in 2006, Israel invaded Lebanon, right? Israel attacked Lebanon. Uh, and Hezbollah, um, you know, CPI to create local councils in the USA. All right. Um, Hezbollah distinguishing these protests from the 2004 color revolution that we were talking about a moment ago. Hezbollah, which is an Iran-aligned organization in Lebanon, it's a Shia Muslim revolutionary organization in Lebanon. Hezbollah kicked Israel's ass. I mean, it just wiped the floor with Israel. Israel got driven the hell out of Lebanon. And the whole Muslim world was cheering for Hezbollah because Israel is so hated. I mean, wherever you go in the Middle East, Saudi Arabia, you know, Jordan, Qatar, you know, Libya, uh, you know, anywhere, Syria, people, everyone hates Israel, right? Israel is seen as like the enemy of the Arab people, the enemy of the Persians, the enemy of the Kurds. Everyone hates Israel. So when Israel invaded Lebanon and Hezbollah just completely destroyed the Israeli army and just, you know, drove them the hell out of, out of Lebanon. At that moment, Iran was like the hero for the whole Middle East, right? 
all kinds of Muslims that were maybe, you know, Sunni rather than Shia or, you know, ethnically didn't like the Persians. Persians and Arabs have this thing. Iran, because it's the Iranian aligned has just wrecked Israel. Um, you know, Iran was surging ahead and the oil prices were high. Um, that's I think that's when Press TV, the English language TV network from Iran that I used to work for, when they started broadcasting, they had an English language TV network. And Iran was like kind of surging ahead as a revolutionary country. Um, and that was largely because of actions. I mean, the United States and Israel basically created a situation where suddenly people all over the Middle East started loving Iran. And part of the reason the Arab Spring happened, the way the Arab Spring was manipulated, part of the reason we had President Obama, Barack Hussein Obama, who went to a Muslim school. Part of the reason uh, that, you know, that you had the, the Arab Spring and all of that, it was trying to, to rechange that. If Bush had stayed in office, um, you know, Iran probably would have become like the symbol of anti-U.S. resistance. And if something like the Arab Spring had happened in, uh, in you know, with, uh, when Bush was president, Iran would have led it. We probably would have had like six more Islamic republics, right? But because Obama was president, because Al Jazeera was able to manipulate it, you know, it was about trying... Part of the reason Obama came into office was basically because Iran was so loved, was so loved, um, you know, across the Middle East, uh, the Middle East, that Obama was like damage control. Obama came in and was trying to like confuse and divide the Muslim world. And under Obama's leadership, Saudi Arabia launched this whole campaign against Shia Muslims, the idea that Shia Muslims are, are not real Muslims, that Iran is secretly trying to take over the world with Shia Islam. All of that, right? Um, you know, uh, that was that was very much what Obama was. Obama was basically a modern-day Napoleon. When Napoleon went to go take over the Middle East, he put up posters everywhere saying that he was a Muslim. He wasn't, but he was just hoping that people in the Middle East would buy that and align with him against the British. And that's what Obama was. It was, you know, he faked out the Muslim world, tried to convince the Muslim world that I'm a guy who understands you. I, you know, have a Middle Eastern middle name. I, you know, I went to a Muslim school when I was a kid. I, you know, it was all bullshit. It was all bullshit, right? But but Obama, and then it was about manipulating the Arab Spring and, and you know, using social media to, you know, manipulate the Arab Spring. And I can get into that. I've talked about that on these streams before, but it's very important. But anyway, I, I guess I've said a lot about Iran. I could go on a lot about Iran all day. I, I know a lot about it. So there you go. Do you agree with Russia's war in Ukraine? Um, I think you mean, do, you, do, do I agree with NATO's war in Ukraine? Uh, you know, do I agree with what NATO has done uh, by, um, by, you know, toppling the Ukrainian government in 2014 and installing a fanatically anti-Russian government and then bombing the people of the eastern regions for eight years straight, you know, brutally destroying the people and bombing the people of Donetsk and Lugansk, not reintegrating them back into Iran like they are into into Ukraine like they agreed to do uh, in the Minsk agreements um, but instead imposing a food blockade suppressing people in the eastern regions for speaking their own language um, you know, do I agree that Russia is right to go in and and you know protect these people after eight years of them being bombed after eight years of the food blockade after eight years of not implementing the Minsk agreements sure I think Russia is doing the right thing um, I, I do think Russia is doing the right thing. I mean, that I just, I think they are, um, you know, um, I don't, any major country would do what Russia is doing at this point, right? If the U.S., if, if, if Russia toppled the government of Mexico and then people that were sympathetic to the United States in Mexico started getting slaughtered 
And for eight years straight, there was nothing but killing and food blockades and, and torture and etc. against the people of uh, uh, in Mexico that were sympathetic to the United States. Eventually, the United States would take some action. Right? This is what any major country would do. Russia is doing the right thing. I think Russia is doing the right thing in Ukraine. Um, it's sad. It's not a good situation. And I sympathize with everyone in Ukraine, whether they're in the Russian eastern regions or whether they're in, in western Ukraine. I sympathize with everyone in Ukraine, what they're suffering. But what Russia is doing right now makes complete, perfect sense. The USA has been arming and cultivating neo-Nazi extremist groups. The USA has been building these bio labs that are tied with the Pentagon. Uh, I'm sorry, but yeah, any major country would respond this way. All right. Why does the USA elect weak, vulnerable presidents like George Bush and Biden? All right. The story doesn't stop there. They began throwing Molotov cocktails at the trade union house. They barred the doors. They barred the first story windows. They wouldn't let anyone out. Bush and Biden. All righty. Very good. All right. Okay. Uh, next question. Uh, any plans for a CPI conference in Philadelphia? Not at the moment, um, but we do have a lot of people on the eastern seaboard, right? We have members in D.C. We have members in New York. We have members in Pennsylvania. So it's something, yeah, we, I mean, again, if you're a local to Philadelphia and you want to help that happen, by all means, um, you know, you know, is, there isn't a local organizing committee in Philadelphia for CPI yet. So maybe if there are members in Philadelphia, they should start a local organizing committee. Um, and then on that basis, maybe, you know, one of our national leaders would come meet with you and that could be the basis of eventually, you know, having a CPI event in Philly. I'd be for that. Um, but, you know, we just don't have, at this point, we don't have people there. You have to have people on the ground to make these events happen. So there you go. All righty. All righty. Next question. Uh, Marcos in the Philippines. Uh, well, Marcos was a brutal dictator backed by the United States. Um, you know, uh, the United States, you know, didn't want to see communism spread throughout the Pacific. Um, there was a communist revolutionary, you know, movement in the Philippines that was aligned with China. And because of that, uh, the USA supported a brutal military dictatorship coming in. But just like, um, just like, you know, the South Korean government of Park Chung-hee, uh, just like, um, just like the Shah of Iran, uh, just like, um, I'm trying to think of some other examples, that, you know, during the Cold War, especially all over Latin America, you had these, like, right-wing military strongmen that the United States supported uh, as a barrier against communism. And at the end of the Cold War, in starting, the first example was Chile. You know, Chile was like the beginning of it. But, you know, a lot of these governments that were aligned with the United States in the developing world, they did a lot of like Bonapartist stuff. The military would own factories. The military would create state-controlled corporations. And there was a lot of like government... Um, government-controlled economic growth to stabilize the economy. You're going to have like a strongman military regime. There has to be a big layer of the population that benefits from it somehow. This is not a secret, right? I mean, this is Hitler, right? Hitler, in order to do what he did, right, he did horrendous things, but in order to do them, there had to be a layer of people in Germany who economically benefit, right? And the same in South Korea. Park Chung-hee, brutal dictator, did awful things, but the only way he could get the support to do it was he had to improve living standards for people in the cities and that in order to have a, a authoritarian strongman regime in order to do that you have to have a very big percentage of the population that feels like they benefit from the actions of the leader 
Because right? That's one thing. If a, if a dictator is not handing out the goods, no one likes him, right? Um, and that's generally how these things work. So during the Cold War, the United States tolerated all these dictators all over South America, Central America, Asia, right? The Asian tigers, all these like strongman dictatorships that did horrendous things, you know, murdered, rounded up communists and killed them, dropped communists out of airplanes, out of helicopters and tortured people. But those guys, they were not free market people. And this is one of the biggest things that like, you know, it's like, it's like the most, it, it's wildly delusional on the part of uh, libertarians is that they have it in their head that all these, all, like that all these governments that were U.S. aligned, you know, during the Cold War were all free market and that they weren't. South Korea, heavy state control. It was, it was, you know, Bonapartism, military Bonapartism, right? Uh, you know, uh, you know, um, you know, Park Chung-hee and, and Marcos was like that. Marcos was a military dictator. And he presided over some economic growth in the Philippines, um, you know, but it wasn't like he wasn't a socialist by any means, but he was just this right wing authoritarian strongman. And he did a lot of like handing out the goods. There was a layer of people in the Philippines who benefited from his leadership. Now, a lot of the people in the Philippines were poor and starving and didn't get anything out of it. A lot of the islands were brutally oppressed and. I mean, it was, it was an awful, awful military dictator, but there was a layer of people in the cities who really benefited from his actions. He handed out the goods. He used the military uh, to, to hand out goods to a certain section of the population. And after the Soviet Union started to decline, like late 80s, as the Soviet Union is starting to decline, the United States really escalates not needing these folks. You know, in, in Chile, Chile, Pinochet in 1973 was the first one of these dictators the USA installed who didn't do that, right? All these other dictators the USA supported around the world were kind of, you know, they were Bonapartists. Pinochet came in and he was a hatchet man. And Pinochet came in and he did an insane free market experiment in, in Chile and just privatized everything. Right. Um, you know, and Marcos was not Pinochet. Right. Lumpia Logic, you know, is saying, yeah, you know, under Marcos, they had manufacturing because he set it up. Right. In, in order for Marcos to be the strongman military dictator, he had to do some stuff to improve people's lives. And so so as the Cold War was coming to an end. The United States basically said, okay, this Marcos guy is getting in our way. And they replaced Marcos with neoliberals. And this is what they do all over the world. This happened in, in and they got, you know, this happened in, in Latin America, in Bolivia, in Venezuela, uh, you know, and that's what George Soros and the Open Society Institute are about, right? The Open Society is they want total free market capitalism. The only reason they had to tolerate these military strongman guys who did, you know, quote unquote populist stuff sometimes uh, was because of the fact that they, um, you know, that they they were the only surefire way of preventing communist revolution. But when the threat of communist revolution wasn't there, they could just bring in neoliberalism. And that's what you need to remember. So Marcos was not good. Marcos was a brutal U.S. backed dictator, killed all kinds of innocent people, committed crimes against humanity. But the USA tolerated him um, because of the fact that he stabilized the Philippines against communism. And as the threat of communist revolution decreased, um, at that point, the USA, you know, then 
basically enabled the Philippines to remove Marcos. Um, you know, and the same for Rios Mont in Guatemala, the same for a lot of these guys, right? And this is what you need to remember, right? That, that um, you, know, you know, we talk about the USA being hypocritical for supporting dictators, but the USA toppled a lot of these dictators too, but it wasn't because they cared about human rights. It was because these dictators were an impediment to the free market, which they were. They were definitely that. They were an impediment to free market reforms, and that's important. Um, um, Ross says, thank you for your solidarity from Ireland, says Ross Eon Cole on Rockfin. Well, thank you, Ross. I appreciate it. All right. Um, why is there still immigration to the USA despite USA uh, collapsing? Well, the USA is nowhere near as collapsed uh, as Mexico or as Central America. I mean, the USA is a fully industrialized, you know, imperialist country. Where, and yes, conditions here are deteriorating, um, but they're not deteriorating. Uh, they're n we're nowhere near uh, the conditions that people face in Central America after years of neoliberalism. We're nowhere near the conditions that people face in Mexico. Uh, you know, I mean, that's just the reality. I mean, we're, we're an imperialist country, the center of the empire. So even though, yes, conditions are deteriorating, they have not deteriorated anywhere near the conditions that people in the, in the colonized world face. Um, so, yeah, there you go. That's that's the question of that. Books on German banking. Well, Hitler's Banker, uh, which is a book about Holomer Schock, that's the book that really helped me understand the economics of Nazi Germany more than anything. Uh, Hitler's Banker is the biography of Holomer Schock. It's very good. It helps you understand the economic basis of fascism. I learned a lot. I really became much more politically astute in my understanding of Bonapartism and politics after reading that book. As far as Otto Strasser, um, I mean, the Strasser brothers... They don't really matter, right? I mean, there's a book called like Germany, what is it, Germany Tomorrow that you can buy that's like one of their writings. And then there's like, there's a biography, there's like a biography of Otto Strasser that was published in Britain during World War II. And I mean, there's, I mean, Otto Strasser, they're not really a big deal. They were just, you know, they were like, you know, the Strasser brothers, Gregor Strasser and Otto Strasser were two Nazi brothers who kind of believed in a much more socialist, in quotes, national socialism, right? Uh, as Hitler was getting ready to take power, he basically said that, you know, all that national socialism means is that the companies, the, the corporations have to be patriotic. Um, and I guess Otto Strasser and Gregor Strasser, um, you know, um, Marcos Jr. being president now, are, um, you know, uh, okay, Marcos Jr. being president now. Uh uh, that Gregor Strasser and Otto Strasser, um, you know, that they they were two Nazis who who wanted a more socialistic version of Nazism. But if you read what they're all about, seething anti-Semitism, seething anti-communism, you know, I I don't you know, there's not I I don't think that they're somehow good, right? Um, you know, Flame of Liberation says Germany Tomorrow is one of the dumbest books ever written. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, they're they're not good, right? There's nothing good about them. They're just anti-Semitic Nazis who have more of a populist side to their rhetoric, basically. Um, and I guess among Nazis, Strasserist is kind of like Trotskyite. It's like they accuse if you're a Nazi and they say you're really, you know, you're really a communist pretending to be a Nazi, they call you a Strasserist. Um, so there you go. Are they prepping us for a war against China? Yes, they are. Uh, Haas has made some very good remarks about that. Yes. And they're trying to make it sound anti-imperialist or anti-establishment. And it's not. And we need to be on top of that. I mean, you know, Noriega, Manuel Noriega. All right. I'll talk about Manuel Noriega. All right. Panama, Manuel Noriega. Um, and, uh, you know, um, 
you know, um, what was I saying again? Um, what was I, what were we talking about? Now it slipped out of my mind. I just thought about Manuel Noriega and, oh boy, oh boy. Um, I was going to answer, there was a super chat I was going to answer and now I forgot what it was. Um, okay, well, if someone remembers what super chat I was about to answer, I'll answer it. Um, but there you go. Um, um, well, we were talking, well, we were talking about the Strasser brothers. And so we talked about that. Okay. Uh, how might a government of action wrestle control away from wall street? Well, we have our four point plan. Uh, if you go to cpiusa.org, we have our four point plan. Uh, and it's about building, uh, building popular support and educating people about these four measures that could be implemented. The government could implement the four policies that we list, you know, the four things, which are mass mobilization to rebuild the country, public control of our natural resources, public control of banking and an economic bill of rights. The government could implement those things, but they won't. And the reason they won't implement them is because it would push back too much of Wall Street power. So it's about raising awareness about the fact the government could do these three, these four things, demanding that the government, um, you know, should, you know, do those four things, building up popular support for those four things among the public, laying the basis for movements, demanding those four things to be built. Um, you know, that's, that's how we would lay the basis for some kind of anti-monopoly government to emerge that could do those four things. All right. All right. Was Napoleon a positive so figure? Well, this, he's one of these figures that's a little bit tricky. All right. Like Oliver Cromwell, right? Now, Oliver Cromwell, is, I'm, I'm comparing him to Oliver Cromwell. Right? Oliver Cromwell, if you're a colonized person, if you're an Irish person, you spit when you hear Oliver Cromwell's name. Brutal mass murderer, murdered millions of Irish people, committed genocide against the Irish people. But in England, in England, Oliver Cromwell was a revolutionary figure. He represented the bourgeois revolution overthrowing feudalism. He was he was a a religious fanatic uh, who, uh, you know, basically the the parliament was was waging war against the king. The king was aligned with the Church of England. And he was aligned with the um, the old, you know, aristocrats and nobles. And the parliament was aligned with the new capitalist class. And so in order to defeat the new capitalist class, um, you know, the parliament had to build kind of a, a, a an army, an uprising of the people. And so Oliver Cromwell was this religious fanatic, this Puritan, who believed that he was going to create kingdom of God on earth and was going to stand with the oppressed and, and all of this. And so Oliver Cromwell emerged. And Oliver Cromwell, I mean, eventually he became the, you know, he was like the king. They didn't call him a king, though. He was the lord and protector. He was like the military dictator of England for, for a few years uh, before he died. You know, Oliver Cromwell was a fanatic, and he was fighting for the people, and he was fighting against, uh, against the old nobility. He was fighting for religious freedom and freedom of conscience, and conscience in a lot of ways against the Church of England. Uh, he was fighting, you know, for, for you, know, you know, in a lot of ways, a society where people got to vote and elect their leaders uh, and expanding suffrage. And there was kind of an upsurge of democracy. You know, pamphlets were being published. The printing press was very new. And that, that in England, Oliver Cromwell represented a step forward for democratic rights. And it was the bourgeois revolution overturning feudalism. So in England, Cromwell was pretty good. In Ireland and in the colonized countries, Oliver Cromwell was a mass murderer. Right. So it's like it's complex. Right. Um, and the same goes for Napoleon. Right. Napoleon's crimes against the people of Haiti. You can't support that. Napoleon's crimes against the people of Africa and the Middle East, you can't support that. But in France and in Europe, Napoleon played a somewhat positive role. 
that, you know, basically the French Revolution had happened and the French Revolution was chaotic, right? The French Revolution, they came in, they overthrew feudalism and out of feudalism, then they had the reign of terror and they were executing people and it was chaos. And then uh, Napoleon marched into power and he, he compromised with the old regime, right? You know, the French Revolution had gone so far and it was so chaotic that basically in order to keep you know, and keep capitalism in power and to solidify the new regime, he compromised, right? And he, um, he, you know, he didn't overturn capitalist property relations. It stayed capitalist. It didn't go back to feudalism. But uh, he brought back the Catholic Church. He made it a Roman Catholic country again. Uh, he made the Napoleonic Code, which was like the law of the country. Um, and he eventually declared himself to be the emperor. So he was like the king. But it was it was now a capitalist country, um, and he kind of proclaimed the ideals so of the I'm French Revolution, again. but he toned them down quite a bit. And because after the French Revolution, all the feudal countries had invaded France and not respected France's sovereignty, he then built up an army that not only kicked out the foreign invaders, but started expanding the ideals of the French Revolution across Europe. And that's why a lot of progressive people thought Napoleon was awesome, like Beethoven. Right, really liked Napoleon. Um, and, um, you know, um, Immanuel Kant really liked Beethoven. And a lot of people, or I'm sorry, really liked Napoleon. And then Napoleon was seen as this kind of, he was the revolution in boots. He was marching the ideals of the, uh, of the French Revolution across Europe. Um, and the British didn't like him because he was challenging British domination of the world. Um, you know, and, um, you know, I believe he was actually, it's kind of interesting. Now there's this whole thing about the Rothschilds, which are a real family, right? But if you bring them up, they say you're anti-Semitic. But the first person to start calling out the Rothschilds was Napoleon, actually. Napoleon started talking about how the British people, you know, there's this family called the Rothschilds, these Rothschilds bankers that are trying to rule the world, and he's fighting the Rothschilds, you know, and Napoleon was, uh, you know, and, and he did believe in a much more state-controlled capitalism. Uh, he argued that, you know, the, the government should facilitate industries. And, you know, in some ways you could argue that Napoleon, you know, was, um, you know, that he was a progressive. However, you know, what he did to the Russians wasn't good, right? What he did to the Russians was awful, right? And he invaded Russia and he killed all kinds of Russian people and was driven out of Russia. And the defeat of Napoleon is considered one of the greatest moments in Russian history. Um, so these are complex figures. The bourgeois revolutions are complicated, right? You know, it's like, what do you think of George Washington? Well, what he did to his slaves wasn't good, and what he did to Native Americans wasn't good, but was George Washington a good figure in the history of the United States? It's complicated. You know, it's complicated. Uh, he was a very bad figure in the way he treated slaves and promoted slavery and practiced slavery. He was a very bad figure in that, you know, part of the American Revolution, if you read the Declaration of Independence, was the British are holding us back from going and killing all the Native Americans and expanding westward. We want to expand westward and kill all the Native Americans, and the British won't let us, so that wasn't good. But, you know, George Washington also was for economic development of the United States and didn't want the United States to be, you know, completely under the dominion, just a trading hub. Basically, the British just wanted the United States to be a trading hub in the British Empire. And the American Revolution, you know, it was a lot of people in the United States who wanted a lot of different things, but they all kind of agreed that they wanted the United States to not just be a trading hub in the British Empire. Uh, that, you know, they wanted the United States to have its own economy. That's why Alexander Hamilton was all about the lighthouses and the, you know, the industry and the National Bank. Uh, they wanted the United States to expand westward, which meant killing a lot of Native Americans. They wanted, you know, the United States to have its own industries. 
it was complicated. But, you know, the American Revolution was largely fought because the British were not going to allow the USA to have its own economy, right? So is it a good thing that the United States has its own economy? Yeah, it's a good thing that the United States was able to have its own economy. Unfortunately, the United States has become an imperialist country that is exploiting people all over the world. The way the United States was created was with genocide against Native Americans. So we're not for that. But, you know, the basic thesis of the American Revolution, should this country have had its own economy? Yes. Yes, it should have, right? So Napoleon, right? Should, should the French Revolution have been overturned and feudalism brought back in France? No. Napoleon was necessary in order to prevent that, right? He he walked in and he was kind of, you know, the thermidor, I guess, the compromise with the old system, the strong man who emerged from the chaos of the reign of terror and consolidated French capitalism, you know, and then started expanding the ideals of the French Revolution across Europe. I view that in a positive light, right? Now, I don't like what he did in Russia. I don't like, like what he did in the Caribbean. I don't like what he did in Africa. But what he did, you know, what he did in Europe, you know, for the most part, his role in Germany, his role fighting the British was good, right? Um, you know, that's kind of my position. And that's why with the bourgeois revolutionaries, it's complicated. Because, you know, as Karl Marx wrote, the bourgeoisie came into the world with, you know, with fangs dripping with blood, right? The, the bourgeois revolution, that's why it's bullshit, right? Whenever anyone gives you this line about, oh, socialism is theft, socialism is theft theft you know the capitalists work for what they have and socialism is about stealing bullshit capitalism was created with mass theft right they stole america from the native americans they stole african people in the transatlantic slave trade and they stole they they, they stole the land from the peasants drove the peasants off the land and cleared out the commons to create private property in the countryside and kicked all the people off the estates oh my gosh and they stole africa with colonialism and and capitalism began with one of the biggest episodes of mass theft that you've ever seen enclosure colonialism slavery give me a break so anyone who says to you oh socialism's theft capitalism began the origins of capitalism what karl marx called primitive accumulation is one of the greatest examples of mass theft and genocidal murderous theft they didn't just steal from people they killed them in mass um you know uh you know um you know it, it's an it, that's what it is so there you go there you go so napoleon's a, a complex figure but in france he played a positive role i would argue all right um in italy and germany social democracy led to fascism is post-world war ii era in the usa the long period of social democracy before fascism no no i don't i don't accept that analysis um would you recommend green card holders to join cpgi or should they get citizenship first do you have anything going on down in florida okay that is a strange question Green, but we'll we'll answer that. Green card, especially for example, holders get CPI membership. Anything in Florida. Alrighty. Um, right. Before Hitler came to power in Germany, there were you know so Germany was an imperialist country. It fought World War One. There was a big socialist movement in Germany. Germany had the biggest socialist movement of any country in the world. Um, before World War One, but the leaders of the socialist movement were a bunch of sellouts and traitors. And they supported the war. The war happened. At the end of the war, uh, basically, they were losing the war, and the, the Kaiser said, all right, and he ordered the Navy to go do one last, like, suicide mission before they surrendered. And the Navy said no, and the, the sailors on the ships killed their officers, and you had an uprising. 
a revolt to the people. Um, and uh, and then that spread to the German military and soldiers were overthrowing their officers. And in various places, in various places throughout Germany, you had workers' councils declaring themselves the government. And, you know, you had, like, it was like a, a socialist revolution that happened in Germany in 1918, at the end of World War One. However, that socialist revolution elected a constituent assembly to go and write the new constitution for Germany. And the new constitution was written by social democrats. And they basically decided we're not going to write a socialist constitution for Germany. And and so instead of writing a socialist constitution, they wrote a capitalist constitution, and they, they said, basically, if the people elect a socialist government, then we can have it. But they didn't write a revolutionary constitution. They did not create a socialist, a, a workers' republic in the aftermath of their revolution. And Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht, you know, they continued to protest and demand that, and so the Social Democrats killed them. And in Bavaria, uh, in Bavaria, uh, the people of Bavaria rose up and briefly declared the Bavarian Soviet Republic, uh, which was like a workers' revolutionary government in Bavaria, and that was put down. And, you know, the German workers had a socialist revolution, but the leaders of the socialist parties, of the Social Democratic Party, stabbed it in the back. And, you know, they basically wrenched, wrenched defeat from the jaws of victory. Uh, it was one of the biggest, it was unbelievable. You had a, one of the most powerful countries in the world as a socialist revolution. The government is overthrown. The workers rise up. They elect a bunch of Marxists to go write the constitution. And the Marxists turn around and wrote a capitalist constitution. And then, you know, one province says, well, no, we actually want to have socialism. And so then they go and murder them. And Rosa Luxemburg says, no, we actually want to have socialism. And so they murder her. And so it, Never had you seen an example of socialism failing more than that. The socialist movement was basically handed a victory, and out of this victory, they managed to lose. And at that point, after World War I, at that point, um, Marxism in Germany was doomed. Because at that point, they'd already had their revolution. The people had been through the horrors of World War I. They had lost World War I. They had brought the socialists and Marxists to power. And the Marxists and socialists had utterly failed, just completely and utterly failed. And so because of that, the Marxists were discredited. So like that, that was the first thing. So then you had about 10 years, well not, yeah, like 15 years from the end of World War I until Hitler came to power. And it was 10 years of economic suffering. Right, the Weimar Republic, the constitution that was created that wasn't the socialist constitution, the capitalist constitution created the Weimar Republic. You had a lot of socialists who got elected to office, you know, throughout Germany. Um, many of the major cities in Germany were run by the Social Democratic Party, a lot of labor unions that were socialists. And then you had the Communist Party, and the Communist Party very much felt the Social Democrats had sold out the revolution and were their, their, their enemies. Um, so you had a lot of very, very desperately poor unemployed people, and the communists started recruiting the desperately poor unemployed people. And the, you know, the social democrats, they were the party of people who still had jobs and worked in factories, factory workers, and the labor unions. So the social democrats became more and more reformist. And they said, basically, the reason people hate communism is because Bolshevism is so bad. They said, our main enemy is on the left. Meanwhile, 
you had the communists became more and more ultra-left because these people are poor and they're struggling and they're desperately poor and they're hungry. They've got nothing to lose but their chains. So, you know, these are two Marxist groups, the Social Democrats and the communists. They're moving like way far away from each other. One is like a left adventurist party that is engaging in like armed struggle, basically. You know, Blut May in 1928, they seize control of the vetting district in Berlin and it's like, you know, it's like it's like they have a revolution. They, they they have an armed revolution, basically. You know, for a few weeks in Germany, um, they have a militia. They you know, and then you know you have the social democrats. You know, and the social democrats. You know, they um, you know they they are becoming more and more reformist, and they're murdering communists in the streets, etc. And and after a little while, it became clear the communists were never going to take power. All right, there were multiple communist uprisings, but none of them ever took power. Um, and then Nazism, Nazism originated as a counter gang to kill communists, right? It was it, that in order to put down, you know, the uprisings, the Marxist uprisings that came after World War One, uh, you know, they, you know, they, they built these armies of like what they called free officers or Fry Corps. And they were like former soldiers who were used to brutally put down communist uprisings. Uh, they were right wing soldiers. Among those guys, the Fry Corps, you know, you had different kind of theories about why why they would do what they did, right? Again, it was just, well, we're, you know, working for the capitalists to defeat the communists. But they had to come up with a theory about why. And so you had, like, they were, some of them were into, like, Oswald Spangler and uh, Ernst Junker and Prussian Socialism. And it's out of this mess of weird right-wing parties to justify brutally putting down communist uprisings. Uh, out of that mess... You got, you got the Nazi Party, um, and the Nazi Party was originally backed by British intelligence, and it was just there to fight the communists. But as the Nazi Party gained its strength, you know, Hitler met with Holmer Schacht, and eventually, the feeling was to stabilize Germany and prevent any threat of communist revolution. They were going to have this military dictatorship. Uh, they were going to have the Nazi fascist state. Um, that is not any. That's not what's happening in the United States at all, and in Italy. Italy, again, there was a lot of social democrats in Italy. World War I happened. After World War I, there was a revolutionary uprising that failed. And then, in, you know, in the instability, the ruling class ultimately put Mussolini into power. But again, like these are countries where there is huge revolutionary turmoil and uprisings going on. Uh, these are countries where the communists have again and again failed to prove that they could actually win. That's not the situation by any means that we have in the United States and that that in the United States I wouldn't call you know post World War II years social democracy by any means um, there was a bigger welfare state but we never really had social democracy in the United States I mean uh, you know we never had presidents that were saying that they were turning the USA to be socialist you know I mean I mean you know I mean I mean if Bernie Sanders got elected president then we could say we live under social democracy but compared to the British Labour Party or anything the USA has never really had left wing leadership since Roosevelt and even the Roosevelt years Roosevelt wasn't even as much of a social democrat as a lot of these European folks are um so I would say we've never really had social democracy in the United States so that analogy uh doesn't work um I I mean in a lot of ways yes the failures of social democracy do strengthen fascism but we're just living in a very, very, very different time. New inventions under socialism. We're living in a very, very different time. All right. New inventions under socialism. All right. We've got a lot of super chats to get through, so we're just going to go boom, boom, boom. 
China, China's opinion on Trotskyism. Well, China is generally anti-Trotskyism, right? The Trotskyites said the Chinese Revolution didn't have any potential. Uh, my understanding is in China, Bukharin is very popular. They reject both Stalin and Trotsky. They like Bukharin. Uh, but the Chinese Communist Party is quite critical of Trotskyism, from what I understand. I do know that in Hong Kong, there's some trot guy, right? They, they, I, some trot politician in Hong Kong. Um, who's got kind of a, a cult following. He was a Trotskyite. He's like a socialist alternative. He goes by long hair or something like that. Um, and I think he has a following. But for the most part, Trotskyism in China is not popular. Um, I will say that I bought a compilation of Trotsky's writings on China that was printed in India, which I thought was interesting because it was because a lot of Marxists in India were studying Trotsky's position on China. Second feature of the crisis. That not only are we having this monitor Sorry, the allergies this time of year. My throat is just tickling like crazy. All right, next question. Um, um, is democratic centralism part of Iranian socialism? Iran doesn't call it system socialist. Iran does not use Marxist language to, to describe their system. Iran rejects Marxism. They say it's not capitalism but Islam. So, you know, I don't know what you're getting at there. By democratic centralism is a theory that Lenin developed in order to build the Bolshevik Party. It's about how the Bolshevik Party operated, and that that you know that all you know what they keep their debates internal, and that every any um uh, any uh, what do you call it any um any disagreement they have is in the party, um, and then once a decision is made, all members are obligated to carry it out whether they agree or disagree. Um, <coughs> Democratic centralism is the party marches, marches as one in unison um, and one face to the masses. Uh, so I don't know how, you know, Iran is not led by Marxists. Iran does not call their system socialist. So I don't know why they would use Leninist. I, I don't even know what you're getting at there. It's a strange question. All right. Um, the son of the Shah has U.S. federal support. Well, yeah, well, the Pahlavists um, are very much... The Pahlavists are very much one of the pro-imperialist, pro-Zionist counter-gangs that exist. You go to L.A., you know, there's a lot of, you know, Pahlavists, people that were in with the with the monarchy of Iran that fled after the revolution. Um, and those folks are, you know, living in Southern California right now. And they have lots of money, and they're wealthy, and they're right-wing, and they're, I mean, they support Trump. And they hate hate Iran, and they want to overthrow the Iranian government, and they support Israel. And I mean, I don't know what to say about them. They're not good folks, you know. Uh, but they're a counter gang in U.S. politics. And that, yeah, the USA will throw them a bone a lot. I noticed the Wall Street Journal like published op eds by them, you know, and that that they will get there. There is a you know an Iranian nationalist current that wants to restore them to the throne, and that seems to be one of the main like pro U.S. factions trying to overthrow the Iranian government or Pahlavists. All right, my favorite Iranian food, shishlik. I love shishlik. Uh, you know, the, 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 these like lamb. Lamb on the bone, amazing stuff. The way they would cook it, they do their lamb amazingly. Shishlik, I could eat shishlik all the time. That is some good meat. I'll tell you that much. I love shishlik. I also really like. They have this like, um, they have this like yogurt um, that is like, uh, it's got like you know, um, shallots. It's like a, it's like a kind of like a mild onion they have in Iran, and it makes this really good yogurt uh, with shallots. It's amazing. I could eat that stuff all day long too. Good stuff. Great stuff. Um, all right. CPI create local councils in the USA. No, CPI is an educational think tank. All right. We're not a party. 
um, and that CPI will be a part of what will come, but we won't be what will come. We're not the vanguard. We are not the party. All right. We're not the party. We're not the vanguard. We're not the Soviets. We're an educational think tank. We will, um, we will do educational work. We will train people. We will inspire people, but we are not, you know, we're not Superman. All right. Um, Workers' councils are things that will arise in the process of people getting inspired to fight for the kind of things that CPI teaches people about, like, you know, like our four-point plan, like anti-imperialism. And as people become more aware of these concepts, as people embrace these concepts, as organizations and activist movements fighting for these concepts like Medicare for All or education for all or public control of banking as these kinds of movements emerge yes councils will come into existence but if we were to announce as cpi like oh we're forming these councils that would just be silly larping that's why we never called ourselves a party after i left the workers world party a lot of people were like caleb you got to go start your own party no because it would be a joke because the workers world party is a joke and the psl is a joke and the cpusa is a joke none of these parties mean jack shit okay none of them mean jack shit okay they're all irrelevant. Average Americans have never even heard of these parties. They've never met anyone from these parties, there right? Are no limits to growth. And, you know, like, you know, all these little tiny, you know, you know, socialist groups, they don't mean anything. They're just people dress um, playing dress up and going, I want to pretend I'm the Bolsheviks. And they, they, yeah, they're not that, okay? And if you're serious, you have to understand that a real revolutionary party that leads millions of people into struggle that that has a chance of actually leading the country looks completely different than anything that any of these groups are doing cpi is an educational group that i believe will disseminate ideas will agitate will propagate will teach people concepts that will i hope eventually lead to something like the party happen something something like the party emerging something like the workers council that we knew we need emerging you know Eventually, yes, something like that will happen. But right now, no. And and the thing is, you can't just do that. If you declare Soviets, it's a joke, right? But if the people were actually in a state of revolt, if there were huge demonstrations and strikes going on in the United States, if imagine if in every major city there were like people occupying buildings of private insurance companies, right? That if, if every private insurance company, there were all kinds of protesters that would chain themselves to the door and, you know, demanding Medicare for all or whatever. And, and if this was happening in every major city, every major health insurance company had its doors chained shut by revolutionary activists. And, and you know, the police were being sent in to drag these revolutionary activists away. And so uh, assemblies of people that supported the people that were shutting down the healthcare companies were emerging and that they would meet every day. How do we, you know, that's the situation. Like that group that would be supporting you know, some kind of revolutionary upsurge of activism of the people. That's what a workers' council would be. That's what a community assembly would be. It wouldn't be me declaring it as CPI, right? That that these kinds of institutions, they argue um, tips for arguing socialism graphic design idea. I don't even know what that means. Uh, I don't even know what that means. But um, Stalin liked Shishlik also. Well, he had good taste. Um, you know, but, uh, but you know, that... that that a, a real revolutionary upsurge, right? Uh, you know, that's where these kind of things come from. And that, you know, these kind of things are, are created in the process of real mass struggles taking place. That's how these things emerge. 
And a revolutionary party is a, a group of thousands of people who operate in a democratic, uh, centralist manner to intervene in some real mass struggle. We don't have anything like that in the United States right now. C CPI, my hope is that maybe we will, with our educational work, lay the basis for something like that to come eventually. Um, you know, and if a revolutionary party emerged, it would, it would, it would by necessity have something like CPI, right? It would have to have an educational wing, you know, that would, you know, that would exist. And it would probably have an electoral wing uh, that ran in elections. It would have an activist wing. It would have a labor union wing. And so, yes, eventually, as something like the Revolutionary Party emerges, CPI will probably be part of a whole machinery that emerges. But we're not in that period yet. We're just at the very beginning of a crisis. I think I compare the period we're in to the Great Awakening, the Great Awakening. Before you had the American Revolution, you had the Great Awakening. Before you had the U.S. Civil War, you had the Second Great Awakening. It was a period where the consciousness of the people expanded. Um, that's the period we're in. We're, it, we're at the very beginning of a revolutionary period, right? And, you know, now socialist talk of socialism is widespread. It wasn't before. The crisis is becoming deeper. We have Bonapartist struggles among the elite. We're moving in a period in which a revolutionary crisis could emerge. But we're not there yet. And, and, you know, in the process of the period that we're in, there will be revolutionary struggles that will emerge and, you know, CPI will be doing educational work and possibly laying the basis for something to emerge. But we have to be realistic, you know, and it's really important for people to have a realistic assessment, right? You know, they talk about when you're a little baby, you think you're the most powerful person in the world, right? You think you're the most powerful person in the world because all you have to do is cry and you get what you want, right? You cry, you get what you want, right? And so a part of becoming an adult is starting to realize your own strength. Um, they talk about teenagers, you know, they spill things a lot because they're not used to their body being the size that it is. And so they, you know, they turn with their elbow and they knock over a drink or they trip and they fall because they're, they're not, they don't know exactly how big they are. They're growing a lot. And so they're not totally familiar with how big their body is. And that part of, be, part of maturity is realizing what you are actually capable of. And that when we're, when we're young, we often have a very exaggerated sense of our own capabilities. You know, when you're a baby, you think that you're the most powerful thing in the world, right? And part of coming into adulthood is realizing, okay, this is what I'm capable of, and this is what I'm not capable of. And that doesn't mean you should aim low, right? And I, I mean, please, by all means, don't aim low. And don't misinterpret me. You should always be aiming high. And always trying to do the best you can. You should always be aspiring to something bigger. But in order to pursue it in a rational way, you have to have your feet on the ground while you look at the sky. Right? If you never look at the sky, you're never going to achieve anything. But if you, if you look at the sky, but you never have your feet on the ground, you're never going to get anywhere. Right? You have to look at the sky with your feet on the ground. That's what you need to do. And if you can look at the sky, but keep your feet on the ground while you do it, then you'll get someplace. Um, I, I've told this story before, but I was just thinking about it the other night. It's an interesting story because, you know, um, you know, I remember when I was in Cleveland, uh, I had two communist friends. They were both my age. They were, I think one was younger and one was the same age as me. And we're riding in the car together. And um, it's really funny. I think about this now and I'm just like, wow. Um, but, um, we're riding in the car together and I had just given a speech at a rally against police brutality. I'd given a speech at a rally against police brutality 
and people had applauded and a couple people said, oh, Caleb, you should run for mayor. You should run for mayor. So I got into the car with my two communist friends. I said, maybe I should run for mayor. You know, maybe someday, you know, I, I could be like the socialist mayor of Cleveland. And my two friends just were just completely nasty to me. You know, like, oh, that could never happen. Blah, 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 blah. I got really mad at them. I'm like, what is wrong with you guys? And it's funny because I look back at that now and like, I'm not mayor of Cleveland, right? But where have I gone in my life? Well, um, you know, I am an international reporter. I uh, have been to many countries. I've written many books. I'm leading a mass socialist organization. And part of my ability to keep going was to look ahead and say, be constantly testing the waters of what is possible, right? And I said, well, maybe I could be mayor of Cleveland someday. And they were, but these two people, where are they? Right? These two people that, you know, I guess they were just so much more realistic. Oh, that could never happen. And they were just being so rude to me. Where are they? Uh, well, one of them, uh, one of them uh, is, well, I don't even want to say where he is. I mean, he's not doing too well. And uh, I guess the other one, I, you know, at risk of, I'm not going to tell other people's personal business, but neither of them have gotten very far. Let me just put it that way. Right. And the reason that they've gotten, not gotten very far is because of the fact that they don't know how to look up. Right. You have to be able to look up. If you can't look up, uh, you know, you can't really achieve anything. Sure. I'm not the mayor of Cleveland, but I've achieved a damn lot. If you look at what I've achieved in the last 10 years, you know, I went from starving in Cleveland to Occupy Wall Street to appearing on international television to, you know, creating an international incident on a ship in the Gulf of Aden to being a featured speaker at international communist conferences to, you know, intervening in politics around the world, you know, to, I mean, I, you know, I mean, if you look at my reputation, I've done a lot and it's because I, I have this ability to look up. I'm constantly going, what is possible? What can be achieved? And there's a lot of people, there's a lot of people who just don't do that. They don't know how to look up, right? And they don't, they, they just sit there and it's like, yeah, it's like, you know, okay, you know, and who knows? Like if I had stayed in Cleveland and somehow found a way to survive and who knows, who knows? Maybe I could be mayor of Cleveland right now. That's not the way my life took me. But, but the fact that I was able to envision that after a couple of people said it to me, that is what enabled me to keep going. And whenever somebody tries to like, you know, stifle your vision, um, you know, that they're not your friend. Anyone who says that, um, you know, anyone who says that growth is bad, whether it's your personal growth, whether it's the growth of society, anyone who tries to tell you growth is bad is trying to kill you. And that's a really important thing. And there's somebody in your life who is constantly telling you not to expand, constantly telling you not to grow, trying to poo-poo your, your ability to expand. They're not your friend. They are trying to kill you. Um, so there you go. Um, and another thing that I'll remember, and this is an interesting moment. Um, this was a, a big moment for me. Is um, I remember, uh, you know, when I was in the Workers' World Party, Bernie Sanders was running for president. And um, I was very angry because they were always saying, oh, you can't talk about socialism. No one's interested in that. Only white men are interested in socialism, blah, blah, blah. And Bernie Sanders was running for president and talking about socialism. And I said, look, it, they should be hearing socialism from us, not from Bernie Sanders. And if we were not just, you know, doing stupid liberal protests all the time, if we were actually going to people with socialism, they'd be learning real socialism and not DSA liberal crap. And I said this, and I remember this older lady in the Workers' World Party said to me, she said, how could you think that we would ever be as big as Bernie Sanders? And I said, I'm sorry, aren't we supposed to be taking power someday? That's a characteristic of the universe. 
I mean, I mean, I'm sorry. Aren't we the vanguard? You know, the revolutionary party is supposed to be taking party. You're saying, how could we ever be possibly as big as Bernie Sanders? I must be in the wrong group. If this group never thinks it's po it's capable of being as big as one single U.S. senator, I'm in the wrong fucking group because I want to see socialism actually come to the United States. Um, and that was like a moment of realization when she said, oh, wow, and, I mean, how could you think we would ever be as big as Bernie Sanders? That's ridiculous. It's like, well, you just laid out why your group uh, has no fucking future, right? And that was like an alarm bell that should have gone off in my head. I mean, if you're in a socialist group, and they don't seem to have a real plan from getting to point A to point B. Uh, they ain't a real. They, they're not worth your time, right? I we have a real plan. We have a four-point plan. We have a realistic assessment of what we're capable of doing. We are capable of providing socialist education to people. And our hope is that people will take up what we're about. The ideas that we're promoting will spread among the masses. Entities like the People's Party will get stronger. Militant labor unionists like Chris Smalls will become more radical and more powerful. Uh, you know, um, you know, struggles against the low-wage police state will expand. Uh, the movement's Medicare for All, you know, but we realize we're not going to do it. We are an educational group. We, we, we have a, a realistic assessment of our goals, but we're constantly thinking about how to get there. Right. And and, you know, when people sit there and they try to tell you, oh, you know, I mean, they're not serious. I mean, you're with the wrong people. You're with the wrong people. Let me just put it that way. All right. Next question. Why does the USA elect vulnerable, weak presidents like Bush and Biden? Uh, I don't think Bush was a vulnerable, weak president. I mean, you know, Bush was an awful president. He was a mass murderer. He was a, a horrendous leader, uh, austerity, neoliberalism, cutbacks, uh, religious fanaticism. Uh, you know, imperialist wars. He was an awful president, but weak. I mean, Bush got almost everything he wanted. Name one thing Bush tried to push through he didn't get. You know, um, you know, uh, you know. I mean, I mean, Bush. Uh, I'm sorry, but uh, in terms of getting shit done, you know, it was not good shit. It was evil shit. But Bush got it done. Biden, on the other hand, Biden is very much like Biden is optics. They want the USA to look that way right now. The because they're setting up for a war against Russia and China. They don't want to look like the aggressor. And so in order to not look like the aggressor, they need a president who's like, oh, oh boy, I'm, you know, I'm Joe Biden. I'm Joe Biden, man. I'm tired. Yeah. It's part of the optics. They need a guy who's fallen down the stairs. They're trying to make the USA not look scary while they psych us up for World War III. You know, if they had a president who looked like Hitler, uh, then it would be very easy for Russia and China to point to the United States and say, see, you've got a screaming madman waving his arms, you you know. But it's very hard, you know. The USA is trying its hardest to not look like the aggressor while it provokes a war in Ukraine, while it sets up to provoke a war in Taiwan. That's what what's going on there. All right, all right. Um, all right, Marcos Jr. being president now. Yeah, I saw that. You know, um, we'll see what kind of president he is. I mean, his father was not not very good, um, but it's clear that the USA didn't like him. So, yes, I saw that already. I already wrote it down. It's on the list. Don't worry. Um, you know, already on the list. Um, but, you know, I mean, you know, we'll see what kind of president he is. But, you know, he doesn't come from a good legacy. The thing is, though, there's nostalgia in the Philippines. Just like, you know, now in the Dominican Republic, a lot of people have nostalgia for Trujillo the brutal dictator of, of the Dominican Republic. Why? Because he was kind of an economic Bonapartist. And under Trujillo, you know, and that's the thing, these Bonapartist regimes that existed during the Cold War had better economic circumstances than what neoliberalism is offering. If it is actually about producing high-quality public goods, that's what he specified. All righty. 
Next question. Manuel Noriega. Um, Manuel Noriega. Uh, well, Manuel Noriega was the military strongman the USA supported in Panama. Um, and um, he was the military dictator of Panama. The USA armed him. He was supporting the, the moves against Nicaragua and such. But he, you know, he basically, um, you know, became independent and started taking populist moves and nationalizing things and started moving against the United States. And so in the name of stopping drugs, the USA invaded Panama and removed him. Uh, there's a great documentary about it called The Panama Deception. Um, and um, a lot of people that I used to work with in the Workers' World Party are in that documentary. They interview them about uh, Noriega. And, uh, International Action Center, Ramsey Clark, who I used to work for, met with Noriega and, you know, and I think defended Noriega, if I'm not mistaken. And yeah, he was the military strongman. Oh, 10. I, I, is that a meme? Is that a meme? Does that mean something? I, I don't know what that means, but I'll take it. Um, you know, um, so there you go. Um, you know, and he was an example of, yeah, one of these leaders the USA backed up who wouldn't go along with neoliberalism, took economic populist moves, so they removed him and put in neoliberalism. Uh, so there you go. Panama Deceptions, great movie. Watch it. Um, all right. Green card holders get CPI membership. Um, well, I mean, look, I mean, if you're if you're getting a green card, um, uh, you know, I mean, you can make your own decisions. Um, CPI is a legal organization. We do not do anything illegal. Uh, we are not a lobby organization. We do not lobby people. We're not involved in any lobbying activity. Uh, we're not even really an activist group. We're an educational group. So we're not leading protests or getting people arrested or anything like that. We're an educational group. So if U.S. leaders are upfront and honest, uh, they should have no problem with you as a green card holder being involved with us because we're not doing anything illegal. Um, that said, you know, is it possible that because CPI espouses socialist and Marxist politics that they could give you some trouble? I mean, I, I don't know. Um, possibly. Um, but if U.S. leaders are fully complying with the law, there should be no problem with you as a green card holder being involved. You're welcome to join. We don't require our members be U.S. citizens, right? You can be a non-citizen uh, in the United States and be a member of CPI. That's no, not a problem. We don't bar people on the basis of citizenship. Um, so you're welcome to join. And we do have a number of members in Florida, um, actually. Um, and we uh, actually, one of our organizers in Florida, we just gave him a list of every member in Florida and he called them up on the phone. Uh, some of the Florida members, I think, are planning to come to the National Training School in Kansas. So um, if you go ahead and join, um, your information will get passed on to the Florida members. You'll probably get a phone call and they'll organize you from there. Um, so yeah, that's my advice to you. Join the CPI. We want to have one K by May. Um, so there you go. Um, causes of mass shootings. Um, I argue it's rooted in the breakdown of us society. It's rooted in the, uh, the mental health crisis, uh, facing young men, the kind of weird identity crisis that a lot of young men have. Um, it's rooted in the fact that there's a crisis of masculinity in the United States that, uh, we're suddenly being told, don't be a toxic masculine person. Uh, we're suddenly being told that, um, you know, that uh, the way, you know, the way the way men act is not acceptable. Um, and so young men, suddenly their masculinity is kind of in crisis. But at the same time, uh, society is offering a lot less opportunity. You know, there's an expectation that young men go out on their own, get a good paying job, get married, you know, get their wife pregnant, have three children, become the breadwinner of a household. And that's not possible for a lot of young men. And they feel a lot of shame around that. Um, meanwhile, society is suddenly saying that a lot of the thing, a lot of the, you know, masculine 
rituals that society used to go through, like bullying, etc. Society is suddenly saying those things are bad, but they still also go on. Um, and so a lot of young men, and then we have a lot of video games, we have a lot of, you know, militarism and war is being widely promoted in our society. At the same time, we're getting this weird mixed woke message and we're told about toxic masculinity and a lot of young men don't know what who they are don't know what they're supposed to do with their life don't know what 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 they're supposed to believe in don't even know what it means to be a man at this point right what does it mean to be a man in the united states it used to be there were very clear expectations about what men were supposed to do now it's not clear it's not clear what men are supposed to do what it means to be a man and so men are really confused they are really 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 confused um, you know, it's, it's really interesting to think about, but it's like the, the, you know, when you read about Freud and the Oedipus complex, right? We know about the Oedipus complex, right? Freud argued that every man has a desire to murder his father and marry his mother, right? And obviously, you know, people say, well, that's bullshit. But really, I mean, the idea is that the way the traditional patriarchal family works, right? Is that, you know, when, you know, the father is like the, the king of the house, right? And this is, I'm not saying this is good. This is bad. Trust me. This is bad. Uh, you know, but the father is kind of the, the king of the house. And when you're a young man, you're kind of like worshiping your father. Um, no, I didn't say that. Uh, and, you know, you kind of worship your father when you're, when you're a child, right? You think your father is the coolest guy. You want to be your father. Your father is big and strong. Your mother, oh, she's a woman. She's weak. She's not as strong as your father. So you, you got to worship your father. But then you hit adolescence. And then all of a sudden, your father is the dominant, you know, man in the household. But you have testosterone. And you want to be the dominant man in the household. So you and your father, when you're a teenager, have this like battle of masculine authority where you're constantly trying to assert that you can be the man and your father is saying, no, I am the man. And you have this battle of masculine authority um, where, you know, you are constantly trying to undermine your father's authority and prove that you're better than him. And thank you, Dan Keating, for the super chat. Um, whereas your father is always trying to find ways to humiliate you and demasculinize you to try and prove that he is still the legitimate authority of the household. And eventually the idea is that you're supposed to hate your father so much that eventually, you know, he's degraded and humiliated and shamed you so much and you've gotten on his nerves so much and, and challenged his authority so much that eventually you go out into the world. And you are supposed to go out into the world and go out and achieve all kinds of great things to prove to your father that he was wrong about you, right? That he was wrong about you, that you're not, you know, you're not weak. He was trying to show your mother that he, you were weak and that he was the strong one. And you're supposed to go out in the world and you're supposed to, uh, you know, be desperate to prove how strong and tough you are to show your father that he was wrong to degrade and humiliate you that way. Um, and this is totally fucked up. And this is, you know, we're talking about mental illness, right? I mean, this is all the things we associate with quote-unquote toxic masculinity. Uh, you know, they're associated with this. I mean, this is not a healthy way of being, right? Um, so this is not good. I'm not defending this. This is, this is when Freud talks about the Oedipus complex. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the fact that, you know, when you're a child, you kind of worship your dad and you're, the man is the head of the household and you aspire to be your dad. But then when suddenly when you've got testosterone and you're an adolescent, you're battling for his authority. 
and he is looking to, you know, degrade you and emasculate you uh, and castrate you, basically. That's what Freud says. And then you're looking to murder him and castrate him and, and you know, and marry your mother or something. And there's this, this testosterone battle, you know, uh, between you and your father that ultimately leads to you going out into the world. And you have, you know, and that's why they say young men have something to prove. Especially teenage boys. They always want to fight. Oh, you ever meet you. teenage boys? Thank they always want to fight. They're always, ah, oh, yeah, you talking to me? You know, you know, it's about this, right? And this is completely fucked up. And a lot of mental illness that we see as a society is rooted in this kind of behavior. Bullying, uh, sexual assault of women, right? A lot of times, guys that sexually assault women, it's like they're trying to prove that they're, you know, they're, it's like they're, they're sexually assaulting women to try and prove something to their fathers, which is fucked up. Um, you know, uh, a lot of the problems with men, you know, violent crime, you know, all of this, you know, is rooted in this Oedipus stuff, right? Where it's like the battle between the young man and his father. Um, but in a, in a lot of ways though, because this was so normal, we like incarnate, we, we like put this into, into society. Uh, you know, I mean, this just became part of, you know, we, you know, for example, the military. Right? The Marines, right? What is that? Run away and join the Marines. You can't stand your dad anymore, right? You want to prove to your dad that, you know, you are strong. Well, you run away and you join the military and you become a big, strong military guy. The Marines, the, the, the military, the armies for young men, that's all about, it plays into that like it fits it like a glove. Uh, right. Uh, there's many examples, right, that a lot of institutions that we built up in our society are specifically designed you know, to designed to cultivate this kind of thinking, right? You know, it's like, okay, we assume that young men are going to have this rage at their fathers. We assume that fathers are going to have this rage at young men. And we almost actively cultivate, right? And, you know, we, we invent rituals to cultivate it and we, we do everything. But now we're starting to come away from it, right? Now, you know, the traditional family is in question. Uh, LGBT stuff is a lot more tolerated, you know, and accepted, which is good. People aren't shamed for being gay the way they used to be. Um, you know, women are a lot more empowered. Uh, you have women that are working full time, you know, and, 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 you know, all of this has changed. So the family structure is kind of being renegotiated, right? And so instead of having institutions kind of set up to deal with this way of doing things, We've kind of undone that, but there's still, the feelings are still there, right? I mean, the, you know, there's going to be a rivalry between the father and his son. That's going to happen, right? You're still going to have the young man feel that he's emasculated. Uh, on top of that, now there's a lot less economic opportunity. So while the society is not encouraging the kind of degrading that young men used to experience, right? Um, I mean, I, we can think of many things. I don't want to get into details about this. You know, I don't want to trigger anyone too bad. But, you know, there's a lot of rituals and things that went on to young men that were specifically designed to foment this kind of rage. Well, we, we're, we're backing away from that. All right? And that's good. Right? And we're not, you know, the, the kind of the bullying culture and all that is, is being watered down. And that's good. However, we still have this expectation Right. And and there's still there's still a lot of problems with how we deal with men. You know, I've said many times on here and I, I mean, I will say again that one of the most common things I hear. Right. Is that you hear women that are really into feminism. They are all about feminism. Right. They are all about feminism. They're like, yes, women's rights. I want women to get paid exactly the same as a man. And I want women to have exactly the same opportunities as men. Right. All great. However, those women, I can guarantee you. They would never date a guy who doesn't have a have a good paying job. 
a lot of feminist women, not all of them, exceptions, of course, but a lot of these women that are all about, oh, you know, I'm going to be empowered. I I'm, I'm, don't need a man. I, you know, that if a guy doesn't have a good paying job, they won't date him. Why? Why? Right? I mean, you know, you know, why? You know, and if, if a guy doesn't have a good paying job, if a guy's dependent on them financially, I, they're going to tell all their friends are going to be like, leave that loser you know, stop wasting your time with that. Why? Right. If you were equal, right. If, I mean, no one says anything. If the guy is working the whole time and the woman doesn't have a job, no one says anything. Right. And they would all be fine with that. But if, if the man is not working and he's dependent on the woman, oh my God, it immediately becomes what a bad, what a worthless, you know what I mean? So it's like, it's like the expectations haven't changed, right? The expectations haven't changed. Um, but but the opportunities have changed. Well, if the opportunities have changed, if women can go out and get jobs that pay just as much as men and all that, which they can't, right? Women don't get paid as the same as men, right? Um, you know, uh, you know, you know, yeah. I mean, people know what I'm saying here, right? And that this creates a situation where, you know, you know, where there's, you know, when you have a lot of unemployed young men, they're going to feel like utter shit, you know? And if you have young men that don't have economic opportunities, they're going to feel like utter shit. And if they're still living at home with a father who is constantly battling with them to prove that he's the real man, and and you can see how in a lot of young men this creates a disaster. So you know we're we're dealing with you know we're we're dealing with a rupture in the old relations, um, basically. There's a rupture in the old relations, and what it means to become a young man. You know the incel shit, right? That we're talking about this incel stuff, the incel stuff the you know angry young white man and the you know the you know the you know the alt-right and all of this a lot of this is rooted in the fact that we are renegotiating traditional social relations which is good but you know we're not they don't just change you know you don't just push a button and these things change they have to adjust um so i don't know i've probably said a lot of things on that in, in that rant there that are that are cancelable so i apologize uh, for for that, but you know, it needs to be said, right? That that you know that society, gender relations, and society, family relations, are and dynamics are changing, and as a result of that, it, it's causing a lot of mental illness among young men. And one way that young men that feel that they have been robbed of their dignity try to assert their their power and their strength is with mass murder, right? In a lot of cases, um, in a lot of cases, young men who feel that they have been you know, the feel that they, they need to prove to the world that they're real men, that they feel they need to prove to the world that they're, that, that, that they have value, that they're tough. They become mass murderers and that's horrendous and it's awful. And I don't feel sorry for them. I'm not saying that, oh, that makes it okay what they did, please. That's not what I'm saying at all. But I'm saying that I think the weird form of mental illness that causes people to become mass murderers is related to the fact that, that the identity and the way society deals with young men is changing. And thank you, Kelly, for the super chat. Um, so there you go. Um, there we go. Well, thank you, Omar. Very good. I'm glad you liked it. I very much appreciate that. All right. New inventions under socialism. Um, LED lights were invented under socialism. AK-47 rifles were invented under socialism. Uh, the first cell phone, uh, cellular phone, mobile phone in history was invented by Kaprionovich in the Soviet Union. Um, a lot of people say fast food comes from the Soviet Union, comes from the collective kitchens uh, that the USSR had during the five-year plans. I've never seen 
full proof of that, but I've heard many people say that fast food in the USA with Route 66 and the depression, you got the beginning of fast food. It's actually in the Soviet Union, the collective kitchens kind of laid the basis for fast food. I think that's interesting. Um, what else? Um, kindergarten, right? Supposedly, or no, daycare, right? Kindergarten was in Germany, but daycare, like daycare centers so women could work, right? That was the Bolsheviks invented that. The daycare uh, was something that they invented as part of their, you know, industrial reforms to try and get women to work in factories. Uh, space travel, that's a good one. You know, class analysis, uh, space travel, very good, Ryan. Um, yeah, um, so... Caleb is the leader the chaotic world needs. Well, thank you. Um, thank you very much. Well, you know, I'm doing the best I can. You know, just like all of us, right? We're all just doing the best we can, right? These are crazy times, and we're all doing the best we can. Um, you know, I, I heard this story about Gus Hall, uh, the, the late leader of the Communist Party back when it was a little bit better, when it was the Soviet-aligned party. The story goes that Gus Hall, um, Gus Hall got out of prison, and he was running for president. Gus Hall went to federal prison for being a communist, right? Because they said he was teaching the violent overthrow of the U.S. government, which he was not doing. They said by selling the writings of Marx and Lenin, like he's teaching an ideology that could inspire the violent overthrow of the government. So he spent like eight years in prison. And he tried to flee to Mexico, I guess. And so because they like abducted him from Mexico, he got an additional sentence for trying to flee. So Gus Hall did some serious time in federal prison. So when Gus Hall got out of prison, uh, he ran for president again when, when he got out of prison. He ran for president. Um, I'm trying to remember what year that would have been, right? I think he ran, I think they, in 1968, they ran Charlene Mitchell. They didn't run Gus Hall. But I think it may have been earlier, maybe in the early 60s, or maybe it was later. But anyway, Gus Hall was the Communist Party boss in the United States. Post-McCarthyism, post post-World War II, Gus Hall was the Communist Party boss until he died in the year 2000. And he got out of prison, and you know he was touring the country on one of his presidential campaigns. And uh, he was touring, and he was you know, giving a speech somewhere. And the speech is over, and people are coming up to him and talking. The story that I heard is that... that that somebody ran up to Gus Hall and they ran up to Gus Hall and they were crying. They said tears in their eyes and they were, they said, Gus, Gus, I'm so ashamed. He said, you know, you know, when the McCarthyism started, and the witch hunts started, you know, I burned my party card. I buried all my communist books in the backyard. I was so scared. I was so scared. I had a wife and kids and I didn't want to go to jail and I, I didn't want the FBI to make me lose my job. And so I, I, I'm so ashamed, Gus, because I see you're out of prison now and you're you're just as bold as you ever were. And, and I'm so ashamed. I burned my party card. I buried my communist books in the backyard. I, I talked against communism at work, you know, so that no one would think I was one. And oh, my God, I just feel awful about it. I just feel horrible, horrible. And Gus Hall turned to the comrade and he hugged him. He just gave him a big hug. And he said, comrade, he said, you did what you could do. And I did what I could do. We all, we all did what we could do in those tough times. And it's okay. And you know, that, that we all can contribute in different ways. Not everyone can contribute in the same way. People have different capabilities. You know, he, Gus Hall, made the decision that he was going to go to prison. He was going to try to flee to Mexico, that he was going to, you know, call out the McCarthy, be a smart ass before the House on American Activities Committee. Gus Hall did a very heroic, he said that was what he could do. But this guy couldn't do that for whatever reason. And that it wasn't about someone being better than somebody else. It wasn't about feeling ashamed. He said, no, comrade, you did what you could do. I did what I could do. 
And that's the attitude that we ought to have, right? I think my goal is to maximize the potential of every revolutionary person, especially revolutionary young people that are full of enthusiasm, that have discovered this kind of politics on their own. I want to maximize your revolutionary potential. But I realize everyone has their limitations. Everybody has their limitations. Everyone has their limitations. Everyone has their limitations. And you just have to realize that when you meet people, I, I've kind of, I feel like this is one of the ways I've gotten better in dealing with people. So when I meet people and they let me down, I, I don't get, I don't, when I meet people, I don't have huge expectations of them first. And when I meet people and they let me down, I make, I make a note of it. I don't get mad at them. I go, aha, this is your limitation. Right. And that's what I should do because everyone has their limitations. There are things that I can't do. There are ways that I, I'm awesome, but there are ways that I will let you down. But if I'm letting you down, it's because that's one of my limitations. And I can improve on my limitations for sure. Um, and so can all of us. But everyone has their limitations, right? And that, that when you meet people, you shouldn't expect everyone to make your dreams come true. You should meet people and realize that they're going to have their limitations, but also realize that they are going to have their capabilities. And that as a revolutionary organizer, when you meet people, you should be assessing their capabilities. What are they capable of? Right? Um, what are they capable of? And, um, you know, when you see someone let you down, you say, aha, that's their limitation. Uh, but when you see someone do something, you should go, very good. And one of the signs that I've noticed, there's a certain type of person who meets you. You meet them, or they meet you, or they meet someone new, and they immediately blow the person up. Full, they have huge expectations. Oh, this person could do this, and this person could do that, and they could do that. And then pretty soon, after knowing the person for a couple months, maybe a year, they start to realize that person ain't infallible, that person has limitations, and pretty soon, they don't like that person anymore. That's not the kind of way, that's not a good way to be. You need to accept people for their flaws. You need to recognize that people will let you down, but you also need to recognize the areas in which they're helpful. And that's my way of dealing with people, right? I try to not blow people up into infallible characters who could do no wrong. I try not to, you know, believe that people are going to make all my dreams come true. But I also try to forgive people for their limitations. That's kind of my approach in dealing with people. But anyway, folks, I think that's our stream for tonight. So, um... There we go. Uh, the topic of uh, my presentation is actually there we go. about the left. We're just because loading the mantra. Me, I don't see, uh, the In the struggle against U.S. imperialism is now emerging throughout the world. Ever since World War II, U.S. imperialism and its followers have been continuously launching wars of aggression. But the people of various countries been continuously waging revolutionary wars to defeat their aggression. And while the danger of a new world war still exists, and the people of all countries must get prepared, revolution is the main trend in the world today. Alrighty. Have a good night, folks.
And the thing, uh, I guess the singular uh, point of distinction of our collective of, of like-minded people is that we wanted to 